Hey, Lacey Anderson, welcome to the Thick Bootcamp Podcast. Hello. Uh, we're really excited to have you, and we're excited to have your Canadian accent on uh, our podcast today. So uh, we, we always enjoy having the kind North Americans with us, since we are from New York and from the U.S., and we're not particularly kind, so it's nice to have some kindness with us today. <laughs> that's you'll, you'll see if that's a true statement or not. <laughs> All right. So, Lacey, first... Uh, I guess you're from Western Canada, right? You're from uh, Calgary, Alberta? Yep, yep. So I live in Alberta. Um, and yeah, I live in the Calgary area. So um, I tend to live in little small towns around it. And yeah, I've lived here on and off for quite a while now, maybe one or two decades. So let's build out a quick context for folks, uh, because we're going to have an interesting podcast. We're going to be talking about uh, both mental health and physical health issues. And you have training and expertise on, on both of those prongs. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about first your training in physical health and how that pivoted over to uh, a, a uh, an element of uh, becoming a mental health profession. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this is exciting for me. I don't know if you saw the smile as you're talking. I'm like, oh, I get to tell someone this. So I, um, I actually... I had undiagnosed ADHD up until I completed a registered nursing program in school. After that, because I was assessing and helping um, doctors diagnose university students. And I was like, oh, me. So it was a very big struggle and I hated school. And then it started to shift sort of some way through the nursing program um, because I was always sitting there like during the lectures, but I was sketching down ideas. I was like, okay, cool. But do, 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 like, you know, this is this and is not in the program. And I was just always, I had a binder full called ideas. And so they tended to sort of be the outside of the box areas that, um, I don't want to say the program like is missing stuff, um, but that was outside of what they were teaching in a general program. So as a student, I felt they call it imposter syndrome a little bit. Um, sometimes when I was working as a nurse, um, like as a student, you do regular medical clinicals and people would be like nurse. And I kind of just look and be like, are they me? I was like, because it felt weird to be called a nurse to me. And everybody told me, they're like, that goes away. Just give it like, you know, a year or so of working as a nurse. And then you'll really feel like a nurse. And I was like, okay. Um, so anyways, after that, I started to, um, I really wanted this clinical placement at a clinic that does STI testing and sexual health um, treatment education. So I lucked out big time. I, I was like, there's, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with nursing, but I know that I wanted to finish the program and get the degree at some point. I'm like, I work really hard for this. Um, but it was sort of, initially it was sort of STI nursing that was like, okay, you, you made the right choice here. Um, and then given that I have ADHD, I get very passionate about certain topics. So I would do a little bit more specialized training than the, than the basic kind of clinic stuff we were doing there too. Um, for fun, I would go pay for like the edu like on weekends, I'd go pay for like the extra education seminars on, on my, for example, HIV and things like that. Um, so, and, and again, I'll be, I'll be bringing up the ADHD a lot because I have multiple interests. Um, I also started to kind of veer off into the mental health, the psychology nursing. Um, so I had a lot of really unique experience in that. Um, and again, I started to sort of step outside of my nursing scope a lot. Um, and so I worked in hospital, psychiatric, um, inpatient nursing. Um, and then I actually switched to community nursing where I then transitioned into extra training to do um, mental health therapy and trauma-based therapy um, with moderate people who have been classified moderate to severe mental health issues. Um, and so I actually just loved 
I just loved that. I was like, oh, I love doing therapy. Like I'm a nurse. It's very far from a nursing scope. Um, but under my license, if you do the proper training here, you, you totally can operate. And I was very passionate about that. So I then started my interest. Next hyper interest became the mental health trauma, um, trauma treatments, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I always wondered, I'm like, why? You know, I have two, two totally different areas. It's not so common, like in, in, that, in nursing, to be so in special, kind of specialized in two areas. Um, and then it all sort of has just been coming together for me now. Um, and uh, I won't spoil it yet because that'll probably like, hey, this will have a feeling it'll be a question later on in the podcast. Like, what next for you? So I'll leave it for that. Um, but I'm very, I'll just say I'm very, very excited about um, how I can use all this as a bit of a gift to the Lyme community. Um, but I'd be lying if I said it was just for the community. It is also part of my healing to do this kind of stuff now, too. Um, I've just kind, kind of seen things keep coming up, you know, um, talking about it, getting your story out there. And so it's to the point now that um, I really want to start doing that. So it's a gift to myself and it's a gift to the Lyme community. And it's things that I've, there's little gaps that I hope I can take together because it's what I like to do. My brain thinks slightly different on these topics and sort of combines every little aspect together and, and then gets a thought on it. So with the STI stuff, I'm hoping to sort of just start us, start everybody off at a certain point with it now. Um, and hopefully some going forward, maybe what can be helpful on the topic to bridge the gaps and hopefully ease some people's minds because there's a lot of myths out there. Um, and so, yeah, so very passionate about it. And my career really set me up well for all this stuff. You are clearly very passionate about it. And uh, one of the reasons why we're passionate about having you on the podcast today is we speak a lot about mindset and skill set here at Think Bootcamp. And in many cases, we'll have a guest who is passionate about this skill set element of this, uh, of this journey. And in, in, in other cases, we have uh, guests who are passionate about the mindset piece. But the truth is, mindset and skill set have to come together on your healing journey. And it's going to be nice to have a conversation with you about these two pieces and see where we agree. And in some cases, Lacey, where we disagree. Yes. I'm certainly looking forward to having, having somewhat of a debate with you on those topics that we may not agree on. So, uh, you know, again, we, you could just see me light up. I'm like, yes, because yeah, I, yeah. I'm a firm believer in that the only way to like improve stuff like this is to have people critique it. So for me, it, it, I'm going to feed off it. If you're critiquing something, I'm going to be I'm going to be like, yes, because there's this is what science is. This is what medicine is. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, for people in like medical areas, you, we need to speak it in a way that they're going to hear it, too. Um, so I, I look really forward to kind of touching on some of those subjects. Of course, I see every single human being is a bio-individual. Every one of us has a, a different emotional fingerprint because we've had different experiences during our childhood and during our lives. And as a result of us having so much biodiversity in the population of people that are going to be listening to this podcast, when you and I are having our disagreements, which are going to come, they're inevitable. <laughs> Um, you know, in some cases, there are going to be folks who are going to uh, lean towards your um, arguments because it will speak to them. And there are going to be some other folks in their bio-individual experience who are going to going to feel moved towards my experience. Right. So that's yeah. why we have to be really careful about being doctrinaire and 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 and, and uh, trying to hold everyone to one framework because it simply doesn't work, especially in a community like this 
where, quite frankly, we are still in a stone age when dealing with Lyme disease, all the way to the point where uh, we don't even agree on the definition of Lyme disease. But since we're at that point, Lazy, and I do, I do want to build out your background a little bit. Okay. Uh, why don't you define Lyme disease for me and tell me whether or not you agree with us on the definition of Lyme disease? Because here at okay. Camp, we we define Lyme disease as a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. Tell me whether or not you like that definition. And if you do not like that definition, tell me why. Okay, can you say it once more for me? I just want to make sure I don't forget any of the pieces. Polymicrobial. Okay. Multisystemic, okay. chronic infectious disease. That is the only thing in our view that is Lyme disease. Okay, sure. Yeah. So so far, okay. Yes. Um, I'll start from the, the top. So polymicrobial. So I have been reading on a little bit on on that. That I'll kind of come into our STI discussion. So I'd say yep. Multisystemic. No system is off limits with Lyme disease. I'll use a quick reference here for like people in the medical world to flag something for them. But just um, when you have a whole body infection, um, almost every single tissue, every single organ. So if you think of that multi-systemic, like with me, nothing was off limits, nothing, 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 chronic, 100% system um, symptoms are there, they're persistent, um, regardless of the debate as to if it exists or not. Um, a lot of other medical diagnosis, um, they eventually over time, just sometimes will make a, a, a diagnosis based off that. Um, and infectious disease, yeah. I have actually don't have any, um, I don't have any quarrels with those so far. All right. So it's good to yes. see that we can begin this podcast as friends <laughs> and agree on, agree on the definition of Lyme disease. So yeah. let's take the next step, Lacey, and, and, and talk a little bit more about your background, because we okay. you, you do have you do have a um, you know, you, you have developed a professional set of skills that is that is uh, very important for folks in this community. But I want folks to get to know you and where you come from in your background. So you are Canadian. Yep. Um, and uh, and you've shared with us that you live you lived in various communities in the outskirts of Calgary, which is a uh, which is a rural part of Canada. So talk mm -hmm. to us about uh, living in you know in a rural part of Canada and how much time you spent outdoors and what you knew about ticks and tick diseases uh, during your childhood leading up to the time when you went to university and ultimately developed your 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 professional skill sets. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'll kind of jump back to the childhood start there then. So um, as a child, my family used to like to go camping a little bit here and there, but they also used to, even as kids, there's a picture of us, of us hiking, um, ones that kids can do, like up at the top of the mountain, like we go hiking through the rubbish. And at the time, I didn't know a whole lot, like maybe that ticks disease, a general, like they exist, um, but we... Um, I, as a kid, I didn't know enough about it. So we didn't take any precautions really as kids, um, to be honest, even so, so in high school I was very busy with sports. Um, and I actually lived in California and played some volleyball and then came back here. Um, and, um, yeah, so that kept me busy, the sports. And then basically once kind of the more competitive stuff faded off for me, I, I was a mount, mountain woman. Like I, I really relied on the mount, fresh mountain air. And where where I live in Calgary, we are 
very close. Like there's a hike here with mountains 30 minutes from where I am in the small town that I'm in right now. Um, so I became for my emotional well-being, that was my calm. I felt really calm in the treats. And then for somebody with complex PTSD and anxiety, that was very, very wonderful for me. Um, and then so maybe in my, how old am I now? So I'm 38. So maybe in my later 20s in hiking years, I, I started to hang out with some people that worked like in, in the woods and they they said, no, you know, Lacey, we need to do a tick check. So we start doing the tick checks outside of the car, like looking at each other and all that stuff after we went hiking. Um, so started with that. And even in my early 30s, I had a friend who's like, oh, I got bit by a tick and we were out hiking. And I was like, oh yeah, like still never thought anything of it. Um, so what actually wound up happening, how old am I now? 38. So I'm, I'm sometimes I'll kind of guesstimate the ages. Cause I, I have to sit down and really think about it. It'd just be easier. But so we query my tick actually a couple hours um, from where I am here near Calgary. Um, no visible tick biker bite or anything like that, but I was, I was in a really, uh, my friend and I, we used to like hiking to the top of a mountain, then running down it. And we took a break in a meadow um, up at the top of the mountain and sat on very tall grass in our shorts, um, like the athletic shorts. Um, didn't feel anything, we jogged down the mountain. And then I got in my car and I looked on my upper thigh and I was like, huh, is this a pimple? Is this a mosquito bite? Nope. So I tried to push something out of it, right? And I was like, hmm. Um, and so that's where we actually query that tick bite. Um, and I went to a doctor eventually after that. That's a whole other story, but she told me not to worry about it. Um, she says, just assist, like no problem. And I was actually starting to have some, now looking back on it, some symptoms of um, early Lyme disease too. Um, so, so yeah, so very, very outdoorsy. And I played sports even outdoors, like slow pit, you know, base, baseball, slow pitch, things like that. Um, yeah, so mountains especially was my uh, mental reprieve and where I actually feel very calm and loved it. So. So let's see, it's likely you were, you were bitten by ticks many times during the course of your life and you just simply didn't know it. And you didn't start doing tick checks despite being a medical professional until you were in your early thirties. Yes. hundred percent. Correct. Yeah. I'm not, it's hard to say why it's, it's like, I, I heard some people. So like, for example, one of the people I'm, I'm referencing of, um, they were a rock climbing guide. So you climb the mountains, right. Um, with safety ropes. Um, so even then, like hearing it from that person, like it's serious. I, I just kind of heard it and was like, okay, you know, I'll do the tick checks. That's all I need to do. Done. So that was the extent of it there too. And in, in, in my personal career, we didn't hear about it at all. Like in my program, in my work, zero. So, so Lacey, the, the other thing you weren't doing is you weren't taking any steps to protect yourself from coming in contact. With ticks, right? We we hear at a lot at Tick Boot Camp, we have a something called um, uh, the Acre Formula, which is avoid, check, remove, and then early intervention, right? And mm -hmm. and because Lyme disease is a disease of exposure, if as a threshold matter you take some precautions to prevent yourself from coming in contact with ticks, either either through or and or um, you know knowing where ticks are and avoiding them, making sure you're wearing proper clothing, and of course wearing different uh, different types of, uh, using different types of tools, whether it be chemical or such as DEET or some some from natural tools, you can prevent mm -hmm. the ticks from, from latching on. So you were taking none of those steps to avoid ticks. Then of course you were starting to check for ticks when you were in your thirties, but of course I'd venture to guess you probably didn't even know how to do that, where you should check and how you should check. So you were yep. generally aware of 
doing this process of checking in and, 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 and maybe going through a process of visually, uh, you know, checking yourself and other people or vice versa, helping each other. Um, but then you, you did ultimately get sick after what was clearly a tick bite. Yeah. So it may have been this one tick bite that caused you to get sick, or it may have been the cumulative effect of having been bitten as an outdoorsy gal many, yeah. many times. And then ultimately this becomes sort of the, you know, the, um, the, the straw that broke the camel's back and, and, and caused you to go down this rabbit hole. So mm-hmm. talk to us about how your symptoms developed from that point where you found this lump on your leg, which you then went to a doctor to uh, seek some diagnostic assistance. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the doctor wasn't well-trained enough or willing to uh, even consider that you were uh, sick from Lyme disease. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a quick reference back, because I actually, it's interesting some of the things I remember. I can actually envision myself in that room talking to her um, and saying to her, it showed up after a hike. It's really weird. I thought it was a pimple or a mosquito bite too. So I had some prompting things. Um, um, but yeah, she's like, oh no, don't worry about it. Um, um, I apologize. I lost my train of thought there. That still happens to me sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no. But so what we were talking about is, um, is, is how things developed after you met with that doctor, because the, initially the doctor um, had said to you, don't worry about it. You, you know, there's nothing for you to be concerned about. And uh, we now know, you know, again, this is some foreshadowing that that was just 180 degrees away from what she should have said to you because yeah. you ultimately got very, very sick. So talk to us about, um, you know, between the time that you met with that doctor and she told you you should not worry about to ultimately uh, becoming chronically ill. Give us the, the, the progress sure. of the disease from uh, point A to point B. Okay. Um, so... After that, uh, I was in in the major city. That was a doctor there. And I moved to one of the smaller cities. So got a new doctor there. And basically, I was just seeing this new doctor every week, sometimes three times a week for a random new symptom. Um, So when I say no part is affected, if I sit here, I won't do it because it'll take your whole podcast. Like if I sit here, I'm touching my head, like going all the way down every single spot I can name, probably like 10 to 20 things that affected all the way down, the whole entire way down. Um, so basically I went to this new doctor um, and I, I didn't know. I was like, okay, the first doctor said nothing to worry about. It's just a benign cyst. Um, but I started to notice, I just felt predisposed like a little bit more. So a little bit, almost like my immune system was struggling. Those were the first symptoms. And so um, I will say this because this will help people with uh, reproductive systems. I started being prone to like more often. Um, so like female vaginal infections. So um, bacterial vaginosis, yeast, urinary tract infections. But it was like, I had a couple of those here and there before, but it was getting just like recurrent, recurrent. And my body couldn't do much about it. And it was way more severe to the point that I'd be like, okay, the pain's so bad, almost need to go to the emergency, can't do much about it. Um, from there, um, little random things started happening. So my spine just was in horrific shape. Um, so I started getting sent to specialists from that doctor. She's getting annoyed with me is just, we'll put it, put it like that. She was getting annoyed with me and she just started sloughing it off, you know, like, uh, what did she say? Like, okay, yeah, this next spine pain, like it's just physio. Um, so actually what happened is I eventually, um, went to a wedding and someone said to me, Lacey, I think you should probably consider Lyme disease. Like, have you ever been tested? And I was like, no, but your symptoms sound like mine. And I was like, maybe I should. So I went back. Oh, go ahead. Oh yeah. But before you get there, Lacey, I I do want to ask you to pause because you know, you said that your doctor was starting to lose 
her patience with you, right? I mean, yes. this, is, this is a new doctor, right? And this is a very important part of why we have to, um, A, uh, build this out for our folks who have been gaslit by, oh. by doctors in the community and how common that is, but also the nature of Lyme disease. And it's one of the reasons why we we, we built into our definition of Lyme disease, multi-systemic, right? Because yeah. what, what often happens when someone is going back to the same doctor and, they're, and they have migrating symptoms, right? The doctor is just wondering, is this is this guy Lacey just out of her mind? Every time she comes here, she has another symptom, but it's not the same symptom, right? Yeah. It's going to another part of her body and she has another complaint about another thing. So talk, let's build that piece out before we get to your testing, uh, because uh, because that is a very important piece here where uh, most yeah. medical professionals are taught one bug, one symptom one, you know, one, uh, one intervention, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to what we see here in, in the Lyme disease arena, where we have multi-systemic migrating symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so to kind of try to jump back to that, I'm so glad you brought it up, but kind of into the community about gaslighting. Um, in, in a quick summary, I will describe it as it was devastating going into my doctor and you could just see like you could see she's just like you're back again like she joke about it sometimes she'd be like ah I see you three times a week yo just three times this week and I mean it's all funny but the reality is I felt like I was dying and it wasn't so funny to me <laughs> that I felt like I was dying and and it felt like nobody cared at that time in terms of medical professions that I felt like I was dying um, and I'm not the type of person as a nurse, especially to go for appointments. If I don't need to, I will sit here basically, unless I think I'm having a heart attack usually. And then I'll be like, okay, okay. I think I might be having a heart attack. I should probably go in. Um, so it was really, really hard for me because so much just like disbelief. And, and at some point, like so many symptoms, so it was the spine, it was allergy testing, all these, Unfortunately, as, as you guys in the community know, unfortunately, mainstream medical tests come back normal too often. And, and then you just doubt yourself even more. Um, and then people around you, they're like, are you sure it's not just you've got some mental health issues? And as a mental health professional, it's like, don't get me wrong, I'm working on that. But that's not what this is. I feel like I am living a very slow, right now it's stretched about six and a half years, going towards seven years. I feel like I'm slowly dying. And nobody in the health system at that point in time, I was, I was going to say, gave an F <laughs> about it. <laughs> maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Um, but but yeah, so just eventually, uh, you can interject at any time. But um, yeah. eventually, I, I, I did say to the doctor, I said, um, I think that I think that maybe I have Lyme disease. And I still remembered the exact response. She laughed at me. And she said, I don't think you do. <laughs> and I was like, all right. So now yeah. do you think perhaps maybe she didn't believe that you had Lyme disease because she didn't have a definition for Lyme disease, right? We have these, we sort of have these definitions that are all over the place where we have this acute illness. Is it a chronic illness? Can it persist? Does it not persist? Is it uh, polymicrobial? Is it, is it a single, um, you know, bacterial infection? I mean, we, because it's so all over the place, um, and doctors are not given any training. And quite frankly, you can give us some insight to that because you're a medical professional. It sounds like you yourself were not trained uh, yes. uh, about diagnosing and treating Lyme disease. 
Yep. Um, do you think it really is more of a definitional issue than anything else that's pre precluding doctors from having the capacity to perceive? Because remember, our mindset, and we're going to talk more about mindset, our mindset controls our, our perception. And if yep. our mindset is such that we don't even have a definition, mm -hmm. how can we perceive something? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And so I've had different experience with different medical professionals, right? So um, I think that it it does really depend because any medical profession, so even me as a nurse, we're human. So we have, we are taught in, in healthcare, like most, most programs that you're not supposed to put any biases, right? Or anything like that. So unfortunately, because we're all human, sometimes a personal opinion just kind of jumps in there. Assumption based on, on lack of information, what you're saying, no training at all. So in the case of this doctor that I'm referencing, it was absolutely lack of any training whatsoever on Lyme disease. And as a result, um, shut it down rather than being open to it. And um, there's a little bit more information on that later. Um, so in the, in the case, 100%, she going back, um, zero knowledge about Lyme disease, except for the fact that she knew in our province, you can submit for testing through our province. Um, it's the, the regular, uh, I believe, like the Western blot, two-tiered one. Um, so not so it's uh, less than 30% accurate with, within four weeks of being um, bit by a tick only. So, like, so, so that's not knowledge that she knew. That's something I learned through the process. Um, and so, yeah, so complete lack of knowledge. But there's also a bit of unwillingness as, as a healthcare professional to learn it. So there's a bit of stigma in there too, to be honest. And that was a bit of a recurring theme for me in my, pro my, my um, experience with healthcare professionals was that there was stigma. So the same way in nursing school, we learn about those stigma um, for certain populations. I was the stigma. I was the population that was being stigmatized. Um, but yes, you're right. It does stem down to complete lack of knowledge. Um, but, but yeah, there's a whole bunch of kind of like politics that I'm sure are like a whole discussion on their own that play into why the medical professionals here treat it, go about it like that. Um, and unfortunately, I find in healthcare, sometimes if we, if it doesn't fit within that, you know, like box that we know of, um, and someone else gives us sort of a, a, a way to shut it down, it's maybe accurate, maybe not negative. And then it's easy to be like, oh, well, watch out. Like, so one of the things I got is watch out there. One of the labs in, in California is ripping off people on testing. So kind of those stereotypes and they're taking too much money from people on holistic approaches. So what? So I actually had, I think three or four different specialists here tell me that. And I was like, well, do you just want me to sit here and die? Like, what am I supposed to do then? But unfortunately they, their minds were a little bit set in that regard. Some were open. I did have one of my practitioners reach out to that doctor and give her some education. And eventually, because I also, um, I think, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to reference this, um, Matt was mentioning he's got some, some fight in there, some, some, um, some spice. Um, I also am a patient, though I, I will keep going. It's, it's very hard for me mentally. But if I know, you know, I'm not just going to like leave it and be like, okay, you know. Uh, that, that's it then I just sit here and quietly die um, so I kept fighting and so that doctor eventually agreed to do blood work testing for me for Lyme disease um, be because she had the stigma already she didn't properly fill out my requisition for testing so it almost got declined on that fact so I actually had to sit there as a very sick neurologically impaired patient and educate her how to properly fill out the requisition for Lyme disease, because otherwise they will decline it because why would they run the test? You don't have any, you know, they don't want to do it. You don't have any symptoms. I had hundred percent of the symptoms on the requisition if she just took a peek at it. Right. So 
So let's get let's have a conversation about the healthcare system in Canada, right? Because we've had folks in um, you know in our community here in the U.S. Uh, on this podcast argue that the reason the U.S. is failing patients um, at a great rate is because we have this capitalist system of of, of rewarding um, uh, medical professionals. Um, and if we had a if we had a nationalized healthcare system, that we'd have fewer problems. Now we've pushed back on that because we've interviewed uh, folks from all over the world, many of whom are um, are being cared for in a uh, socialized medical system, and they've had exactly the same problems. In fact, in many cases, uh, you know, a, a a worse experience than we have here in the U.S. without a nationalized healthcare system. So, talk to us about the first the Canadian medical system which is considered one of the premier nationalized healthcare systems in the world. I think Israel and Canada are considered the, 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 the top two um, uh, systems and how despite having, uh, you know, one of the top two uh, uh, socialized medical systems in the, uh, in the world that you were failed by the doctors who were working within that system. Yeah. Yeah. I love that question too. I have to sometimes just take a moment to get my excitement out about it. Cause I get to talk about this with people that are interested. So um, cool. I didn't know Israel was known for its healthcare system. Um, so let me tell you a bit about Canada's. Um, and it's slightly, it is slightly different province to province, um, the structures. So in, in my province, there's one uh, main overarching kind of health that um, has in every, almost every town. Um, so it's named after the province. So I mean, I won't, won't say it, but it's named after the province. And so uh, there is um, coverage for a lot of medical things. So for me here as a Canadian, if I'm having chest pain and I need to go to the emergency, um, the emergency visit is 100% covered here for me. Um, so also our family doctor visits, so regular family doctors, um, most of those visits are also completely covered. Maybe if they refer you to a specialist that's outside of the covered specialist, then you pay out of pocket for that. Um, also for things like MRIs, uh, those are covered, but there tends to be sometimes, you know, maybe a year wait list. So sometimes people will. So there are um, there are little tiny bits of privatization that pop up. So similarities more to what I could be wrong about United States healthcare system. Um, so with that, though, with that being said, um, in terms of Lyme disease in particular, um, it's 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 more similar to what I understand to be the United States model. So to give you a quick quick thing to ponder, so $300,000 out of pocket, um, but the basic diagnostic text, text, tests, I still go to and get those done with my family doctor. If that wasn't covered, I think I'd be more to like in debt what other people, I don't know what the states would be. So we're sitting like 100 to even like $800,000. I'm guessing you guys can comment on that. Um, but for, for me here with those, those bits that are covered, like, so x-rays are covered, ultrasounds are covered. Um, a lot of those things are covered. Um, um, let's see what else. Yeah. Any questions you have about that? Just let me know. Lyme yeah, disease, so is, Lyme disease is outlier here in Canada. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what we find is regardless of the system, whether you have a private insurance system, the way we have here in the U S or you have a public insurance system, the way you do in Canada, um, unfortunately, you have to step out of the system to get your care for Lyme disease because it is actually the frameworks for the generally accepted medical practices that don't meet our needs when we have Lyme disease. And because of that, no matter what the payment method is, 
you're not going to be covered. It really doesn't matter whether or not it's a private or it's a public healthcare system. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the outlier. And there was one um, um, specialist here in my area. He did have a practice where um, I won't get too much into it, but unfortunately uh, he's no longer practicing and shut down. So I waited on a wait list for a couple of years to see him for that hope um, to maybe get some like primarily antibiotic type treatments and, and general support um, that was within a, the healthcare system. Um, so there was that and I was pretty excited about it, but unfortunately I got that, that call after a couple of years waiting on the wait list. Sorry, like now we're not taking these ones. And so then I was, then I was I, I back out of pocket, the same, same kind of searching. So. But let's talk about the practitioner essentially accusing you of, uh, well, you know, suggesting it was all in your head, right? I mean, uh, implying that this was a mental health issue. And, and I really love the way you said to this practitioner, hey, I, I am somebody who's aware of, of, of my mental health. I am working on that as I should be. But I'm telling you, this is not a mental health issue. I am physically sick. I am getting sicker and sicker, right? Mm -hmm. So I want, I, want, I want you to sort of explore this, looking at it through two different prisms. The first is you yourself are a healthcare professional. You're a nurse. And your colleague is not treating you properly. They're not treating you as a colleague, not treating you as a fellow professional. And I want to know what impact that had on your mental health. And then I want you to talk to me generally about how being gaslit as a patient impacted your, your, your mental health. And then I want you to tie that all together and talk about the impact this was having on immune dysfunction and the, and the, and the connection between uh, being in the sympathetic, being triggered into the sympathetic presentation of your nervous system and the impact that this sort of dual path of gaslighting was having on uh, on your developing immune dysfunction? Well, look at that. That's a nice question too. Multi-layered. I like it. Okay. Uh, okay. So for me, oh, like to be honest, it was absolutely heartbreaking to see that patients get can get treated like that in a system that's known, you know, renowned and things are covered. Um, it really took a toll on my self-esteem, if I'm being honest, because, uh, because, yeah, because I don't know, I'm having troubles finding the words, um, and I had neurological Lyme disease, so my brain just, it just was struggling, like, uh, I'm trying, I lost the words, like, I could still speak, like, something referenced in our, in our, in our pre-podcast chat, I could speak, but I couldn't find the words to explain Lyme disease to people. I was just like, this is like nothing I've experienced as a nurse. I've seen so many medical diagnoses. This is like a combination of so many of those, but it's you're just left to flail. If you were a patient for me and I'm working on a medical unit, you have a social worker connected to you. They're constantly on, they have a caseworker supporting you. You have a peer support. You have a whole medical team following you that's covered. Um, nurses, everything, you're getting connected to support groups, um, because that is what patients with this severity of things need. The only, and the difference is I'm sitting here outside of the hospital, and I know that people in the hospital for other diagnosis get these services, and I'm like, I'm just, it was devastating. I was devastated to know that I'm a healthcare professional, and this family doctor knew that about me. Um, I was just devastated uh, that she gaslit me. I was devastated because I went back to family and friends and they're like, oh, what were the results? What did what'd she say? Mm, she said, just do some more, continue doing physio, continue. I was like, I've been doing physio for five years now. Like how much physio, I'll keep doing it, but there's a point where it's probably not physio that's gonna 
going to help me. Um, so it really rattled me to my core and it really changed. Like I've always never wanted to make patients feel bad. Uh, and on our licenses, doctors and nurses, it, there is a clause like do no harm. So that includes mental health harm. Let me, um, let me, I'm going to jump in here, Lacey, because the yeah. question I'm thinking of, and first of all, it's horrible that you as a nurse were treated the way you were treated, but, but those of us without your brilliance and your nursing background and your medical background are even worse off than you were. Right. I feel oh, like, so I cannot even imagine. I, the, I say this to my partner all the time. I was just like, you cannot even, I'm using the F bomb. You can't even fucking imagine with my expertise. I felt so small. I was traumatized further with complex PTSD. And then you put people without my background in it, they are absolutely treated worse. And they have no idea how to defend with a medical background. Well, and I don't like that, that. So Lacey, is that really true? Or is it really worse for someone like you who built her entire identity around believing that the system worked and that you would be able to help people in the system and that just crumbled in front of you. So I'm wondering whether or not it's actually worse for someone like you whose entire identity was built around believing in the system and when it crumbled, that also caused your identity to crumble. Or was it like you arguing to Matt, worse for people like Matt who didn't have a medical background and because he didn't, he didn't have a medical background, he, you know, he was he was lost in the system because, by the way, you were also lost in the system. Yeah. But after your identity crumbled. Yes, yes, yes. And um, that's interesting because, yeah, because I'm so used to, you know, caring for others. My default is that. So I'll think of that first and I will I'll, I'll stand up for others. Right. But in that case, I couldn't stand up for myself. I was too sick. So nobody's like, you know. I did even start, I actually started bringing people to my medical appointments because I felt so marginalized in my appointments. Um, and I didn't think they were going to believe what I had to say. So, um, so I'd, I'd bring like, for example, like a romantic partner, because sometimes even just a male in the room changed their attitude towards me a little bit. And I was like, is this for real? Like, all I have to do is sit there. You didn't say anything. Um, and then they're like listening. If I say it, they're like, oh, an internal medicine specialist told me I was a healthy young woman with some rashes and migraines. And I was just like, so eight, that was probably 80, 100 symptoms in. Um, and then I went back to see him again. And at that point, I brought someone with me. And then he was a little bit more understanding, ran some more tests. But at the end of the day, he's still like, ah, <laughs> I don't know. So, this, yeah. Lisa, I, I, have, I do have a question because looking back, right, it's from a position of where you are now, which is much further along in your journey, there have to be tips and tricks you can give to our listeners who aren't as far along as you are in your journey. Now, it's horribly wrong that we are treated this way as patients, and it's horribly wrong that we're neurologically impaired, we're not believed, we're told it's all in our heads, we've had the million dollar workup, I've been there, you've been there, most of our listeners have been there. Yeah. But what are what's some advice you can give our listeners to combat that, whether it be in the ER setting, whether it be seeing a specialist, whether it be seeing your primary care doctor, what are things looking back you would have done differently to get better buy-in and belief from the doctors as frustrating as it may be? Hmm. So the buy-in at that particular point in time was, I, I want to say with my capacity of illness, I think, to be honest, the buy-in, that direct face-to-face -face route with the medical profession professionals, it can, you balance the like, what, what, I'm a realist, right? So I balance what can I actually accomplish through conversation with them here? Um, like, can I actually change it in this environment here talking to them? And to be honest, my mental health assessment in some of those situation of the medical professionals, like, no, their mind's made up. Like, they're going to start getting defensive. 
Um, I was like, okay, so I, I can sense this as a mental health practitioner. I'm like, okay, unfortunately, there's nothing I can do here. I, I, I've just got to leave. So actually, what I would suggest is when you're considering going to a medical appointment, so bring someone with you, bring someone with you, bring someone with you. I, I started telling people that. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, it's okay. I'm, I'm a health professional. I'll just go see her for a quick, you know, this doctor for a quick that. And then I just stopped doing it because I have a little bit of like the tough guy, you know, tough guys mentality sometimes. Uh, and so, yeah, so bring someone with you, witness. Um, if you can't write down everything, you might consider with the consent of the professional. My professionals, I have an A-team working with, with me. I'm really excited. I call them my A-team. And they're really, really helping me to get where I am today. And they let me record because they know my limitations with my brain. That's a lot of stuff I'm, I'm not going to remember from a, an hour and 30 minute appointment. So they let me record it. Um, the support groups online. So things like this. And for me, um, like I, I lucked out and had a temporary uh, support group online. And then also I'm in Canadian Facebook groups. Um, and I'm also in an American version of a Lime um, Facebook uh, group as well. And so to be honest, I ask them some questions about stuff before I go see the doctors because I can gather, everybody has an opinion. So I, I take it with a grain of salt, but there are things that they are experts on that I need to know before I go because I need to know what I need to fight for in that appointment. I need to know ahead of time. So unfortunately not everybody's in that position. So try to get just one person that can, who's fierce for you. I just um, want to share real quick. I know Rich is about to jump in too for our listeners. I know this is my part. I apologize, Rich. But I just wanted to <laughs> let everybody know that we met Lacey at a Lyme support group. And then we've been looking forward to this podcast interview for quite a while. So Lyme support groups are double-edged sword. I think some of them, depending on the the night, frankly, if it's the same group or just some groups in general can be more beneficial than others from my personal experience. But if you're aware of that going into it, there are going to be some good groups that can help you have that information, bring that background information to your doctor and that specialty. And for us, it was very helpful to meet you, Lacey. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. And Rich, I apologize. I'm going to shut up until no, I get no, to no, my no. part. Look, it's a conversation. <laughs> it's not uh, it's not only, you know, it's not only me talking with Lacey, it's 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 all of us talking together. And I, and I think that you know, we should we should summarize some of what Lacey had suggested, right? So the the first thing that I really enjoyed that you were you identified, Lacey, is the mindset piece, right? And we're going to keep that theme is going to keep developing with us on this podcast, right? And your mindset really has to be recognizing two things. First, doctors are not going to be your saviors, right? They're just simply not. We like to believe that we're going to walk in and the savior is going to ride in on his or her or their white horse and they're going to give us a pill and we're going to get better. That's just simply not a model that works when you're chronically ill, right? In an acute care uh, environment that may work in our, in, in, when we have chronic illnesses, it doesn't work, right? So our mindset has to be different, recognizing that no one is going to walk in and give us, identify one problem and one pill and make us better they are they are going to have their limitations. The second thing we have to recognize, of course, is that they're working within a business model. You're walking into a business when you walk into a doctor's office, and there are going to be some limitations associated with what that doctor is going to be willing to do for you within the confines of their business model, which, by the way, is not to do it for you, but you're going to have to do it together, which means, again, we're now going to have to respond with ability. That's what responsibility is. It's not a dirty word. Responding with ability means that we now have to meet with other people, 
let them give us input so we can be prepared for our appointment because Lyme disease has its own language. The yep. illness has its own, has its uh, its very own set of terms. And in order to be able to communicate with our medical professionals, we have to know the language of Lyme in order to be able to communicate with them. You also said that it's a good idea to have someone with you. In some cases, it makes it more likely that you'll be treated more politely because there's a witness there. I heard you use the word witness. Um, but also, I think you also suggested that it's good to have another person there because we're going to be, it's going to be an emotionally charged experience. And we're, we're, we're in many cases going to be triggered. And as a result, we're not going to be able to take in everything that, uh, that is available. And in most cases, because this is a multi-systemic um, infectious disease, we're going to be neurologically impaired. And because we're neurologically impaired, we're not going to be able to take everything in. So you've given us a lot of really nice um, uh, points here to help people to understand what the process can be to get the best result from the system, regardless of how it's being paid for. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to advising folks in this community about what they may want to do to get the best results and have the healthiest relationship with their healthcare professionals? Hmm. That's, While you're thinking, I'm just yeah, going to say, <laughs> we have so much already. And with what you're about to give us, we're going to turn this into a blog post because I'm already blown away by all this. And I think we need to transcribe it, put it in text and publish it because this is really powerful information yeah, that I think yeah. I wish I had when I first got sick. And I think a lot of us wish they have to do almost checklist of things they yeah. should do in preparation for a doctor's appointment because we know oh, they can yeah. be so, so nerve wracking, right? It'll help decrease yeah. our anxiety and also optimize the outcome of these appointments. I'm sorry, Lacey, I just wanted to- No, that's good. Jump a in. quick quick note on what you just said there while I'm thinking and go back is actually like in med school, and I never took it, but I know that they, and in nursing, they teach you of the white coat dynamic. So it's a natural power imbalance that exists no matter what. So it doesn't matter what your background, you go into a medical appointment, they are the ones that get to decide what testing you do. So it's a natural power imbalance. And there's a, a lot of studies where just walking into the room without chronic illness, people go into like nervousness, anxious. And it's because of this. Nothing that medical doctors are doing on purpose is the same with a nurse if they're dressed really like medical, you know, on a unit. That's why in certain areas of nursing, they they, they actually say, don't wear scrubs, wear casual like street clothing, right? So wow. I just, just to throw that in there as well. So, so we know that. So imagine someone with chronic illness going in there, without a medical background um, and their brains are, are not optimally functioning and the general power dynamic that exists at the end of the day, they make the decisions. So it's a, a source of a bit of powerlessness. So kind of going back here, um, kind of looping back around there where you wanna try to regain some of that power back um, is a little bit of acceptance that they operate within a framework. So I'll touch back on that. Yes, they do. So there, there is, unless you meet the, the one, and this is just a random number, don't quote me, don't transcribe this one or how we do it. Um, one in a thousand person that, you know, he's like, no, I care. This person's struggling. I got to research this on my own time, like what they're coming in for. Um, and they do exist, but unfortunately you can't rely on finding them. Um, so I think a, the realistic approach, if you are operating in, so in my case in Canada, where the where it's covered, you realize that that's outside of the scope, that's outside of it. Um, so, you know, where you might find your power is eventually switching to a practitioner, not that it's going to save you, but but that properly knows all of the medical things. The uh, Some people say functional medicine or in the States, LLMD approach. 
Um, so we don't have LLMDs technically here, um, but the functional medicine doctor MDs do do some of the similar stuff here. So you kind of accept that, you know, so for me, it's accepting that in the health system, they can only do, you know, what they can do. Um, for me, I found what, what I need in functional medicine. So that's the root cause of everything. That's knowing for me, the basics to properly treat me, which is Lyme, co-infections, viruses, dormant, active, um, toxoplasmosis, parasites, mast cell activation syndrome, multiple chemi chemical sensitivity, all those things my practitioner needed to know to properly treat me without putting me into a debilitating state where my body can't handle it. So um, I wouldn't say that they save you, but for me, I needed to find that doctor. I needed to find her. And she said, I'm going to work with you. You know, I, I, have, I have hope for you when you don't. And for me, I needed that. So it's not that it saved me. It's that someone with the actual proper knowledge I'm now connected with. So, so that's kind of where the, there's a little bit of a differentiation for me. Well, Lacey, let, let's come back to the framework conversation that you were having a moment ago, right? Because, because in every medical system, we have research uh, professionals and we have clinical professionals, right? And, and what research professionals do is they study the general population, and we know the general population is going to ultimately present in a bell-shaped curve, and they come up with frameworks that work for 80% of the population, right? Mm -hmm. What a clinician is supposed to do is then evaluate whether or not you are a you you fall within the typical community of people that the frameworks have been designed to 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 treat, or whether or not you're an outlier. Mm -hmm. But clinicians are punished if they are too aggressive in treating outliers because they're not using generally accepted medical practices. So let's talk about the frameworks first and how they're created and the risks that doctors and healthcare professionals like you um, are taking when they, as clinicians, are supposed to be coming up with, with uh, treatment protocols for outliers, but then get punished by the system when they do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, ha I have observed a little bit of that where people are sort of, you know, a little more quiet about what they're doing to help people. Um, and it's for that reason that, unfortunately, they run into issues with their licenses. So I assume that's the same in the United States as Canada. I've heard a little bit of both. Um, so I'd say most of that, like here, f falls into the clinician. So as, an, as a nurse, I'm not prescribing, right? So things like that. So that falls more into the medical doctors here or nurse practitioners, um, that kind of scope. Um, and so, yeah, I have essentially heard that they're, they're cautious. And so it, it's, it's kind of that risk that the odd, like, so I've heard of a few in different provinces, actually, same thing. They ran into trouble with their license. They were doing what needed to be done. And then they had to stop or they went somewhere else um, because they had to defend it. So um yeah it's a very big uh there's a word in school like a ethical conflict that that arises for healthcare providers um and then it's tricky falling on the healthcare providers that don't even know they're participating in a bit of an ethical conflict because that I'll come back to it under your licenses here do no harm healthcare provider do no harm 
Well, but you know, and, but the, that's not as easy to define as uh, as we would like it to be, right? Because at least here in the states, you you and I have had conversations in the past about about my career. I'm a practicing attorney, and I can tell you that where doctors get themselves in trouble with the legal system, not just from a licensing standpoint, but from the mm -hmm. standpoint of being sued for malpractice, is when mm -hmm. they engage in 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 diagnostic and treatment protocols that are outside of the scope of generally accepted medical practices, right? So okay. you healthcare professionals actually have two different systems that are essentially discouraging you from treating outliers in a clinical setting. The first is it's possible that despite all the work that you've done during your career, both educationally and experientially, you could have your license taken away from you. And mm -hmm. it's also possible that you could be sued. And because you didn't use generally accepted medical practices, that's the definition of negligence in a medical malpractice uh, claim. Mm -hmm. And you could you could be sued for large amounts of money. And at the very least, that could that will cause your insurance rates to increase and make you less profitable as a as a uh, as a business professional. But even more importantly, you may be put out of business and 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 lose everything that you have because you've been sued for medical malpractice. Yeah, that's a, a really good thing to add in there too, right? Is the the risk that people are taking to help people essentially. And I couldn't imagine dealing with the legalities around being sued. You would be able to tell me, I'm sure it's not a quick three month process. It's, the, it's your life. I'm guessing how long would you say something like that takes? Well, here in the US, US it would take years and years and years and, oh. and, and mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Nobody wants to deal with that either, right? So, so yeah, it kind of it puts a, a human perspective on it for me to look back at and be like, you guys are risking a lot to do this, like a lot, a lot. So now let's walk back to the conversation we were having a moment ago, where we argue that when you walk into a doctor's office, you're walking into a business, right? That is how the professional is feeding themselves and their family, and ultimately. If they want to continue to do that and they want to continue to do that in a profitable way, they are being encouraged to only treat people within the confines of the generally accepted medical practices. And if you're an outlier, you don't fit into that, that bell shape, you know, the bell portion of the curve, that it's very difficult for you to find someone to treat you when you're an outlier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It it honestly, I think I got connected to who I'm connected with now about a year and a half ago, and I bounced many different ones. Um, so in Canada, like our health system, um, medical doctors, they are covered unless they're outside. And then same thing as there are some physicians that go private. And then so those are the ones that typically do like functional medicine or a skin, a derm type of clinic. So there's a little bit of that at the same time where where the business model, um, because I'm, I don't want to go, I'm not hundred percent of it, but payment for in healthcare is, is not necessarily um, in the health system based on how many people you see and things like that. But our, our, our bits of private operate the same as, as you in the States in that, that regard. Um, and so I am, I, I apologize. I may have lost the question again, but yeah, I can only imagine that it's very difficult for them. So I want to, I want to now sort of build out this last piece and then, and then I'm going to turn you over to Matt so he can talk with yeah. you about uh, about your your diagnosis and ultimately how you began to treat. Um, 
But you know, there. One of the things that we do, and I think it's a mistake, is that we dis, we we define ourselves as spiritual beings and as physical beings and as emotional beings. But the truth is, we're really one human being with a number of different elements of of who we are, right? And we talked a lot about um, you being immunosuppressed. You started to hint that you you are you were having you were having reproductive health issues on a fairly regular basis which could be looked at as reproductive health issues, or it could be looked out, looked at as somebody who is immunocompromised and it's just presenting over and over and over again in this particular fashion, right? Mm -hmm. and, then, and then of course, when we're not feeling well physically, that has an impact on our emotional health as well, right? Because there is this interplay between physical health and emotional health. And in many cases, being physically unwell will trigger us into the sympathetic nervous uh, nervous presentation of our of our nervous system and that of course puts us in a position where we're even more immunocompromised so can you build that out for us about how all of this is coming down where you were having these identity issues from the standpoint of being betrayed by your profession where you were being gaslit by by your medical professionals and they and that was having the impact that it was having on you emotionally you are now physically feeling horrifically, uh, and 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 you had multi-systemic challenges and multi-systemic pain. And how is this? How are, were your physical uh, your physical symptoms impacting you? Your 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 mindset and your and your mental condition. And how is it also now spinning back and essentially creating momentum for more immunosuppression? Oh, gonna pull it together. Okay, quick, quick question with a question. Do people smile as much as I do as you're building up to the question? They're like, <laughs> is that common? Sometimes and sometimes they're <laughs> growling okay. at me and I see their hands coming through the screen at me. I so, almost wanted, yeah. I was like, I was like wanting to like, yeah, like hand gestures, but I was like, well, I'll just wait for them to finish because, okay. So I have these conversation. A lot of my friends are mental health therapists and one of my good friends is a nurse practitioner here. So we both, she has different types of chronic illness, but we talk about it, how hard it is to be in any kind of a decent mood when your brain, just when your brain is inflamed, one thing. Um, next, your like sleep, stress hormone production, when those things are affected, you can feel a little wonky. But even if you have a Herx or a flare and just pain in itself, there's a lot of medical research on it, um, pain in itself, contributes to the low energy and fatigue because your body can't tolerate being in severe pain that long. It eventually not fully shuts down, but it says, I can't do this anymore. Um, and it tries to protect itself from it. Um, so that's why in healthcare, they encourage you to manage pain. They say, don't hold off. Like if somebody is in severe pain, you need to manage the pain, right? If they're saying they're in pain, you need to help them manage that pain. So me and my friend frequently talk about like, um, like how's you, we don't expect a really great mood on a flare up day. So this is hopefully helpful for people. Um, physical health and mental health are so, so intertwined. Um, and the reason being, being a mental health professional, I have oodles of therapy tools, oodles of medication strategies, oodles of like trauma strategies. 
at the end of the day, I, I couldn't I couldn't manage my moods and um, panic symptoms because my sympathetic nervous system at that point was completely out of control. So I went I went in the high rev stage, which is common. You stay in that state as long as, long as you I guess I don't even hold my fingers up in the air anymore. Um, you stay in that state as long as your body can physically tolerate it. And then what tends to happen is you crash. And then the cortisol goes low and, and you're basically in a detached numb state. Um, so there's no like for me my pain would get so bad I'd, I'd dissociate I couldn't think I couldn't talk sometimes I'd call a family member crying on the phone about to, to throw up in the toilet like the pain's so bad I can't take it anymore I can't take it I can't take it um and I'm not gonna be in any kind of a functional mood in that state I'm surviving um so that aside when you're not in a flare-up surviving your body is most of the time in a state of survival with these diagnoses you have an infection in your body um, you're, you're surviving, you're competing with an infection in your entire body and the co-infection and the other things. Um, it's really lower your expectations of your mood for yourself. Um, I know what, I'm not saying there's anything, you know, wrong with being positive all the time, but that's, what's so important to find, uh, someone where you can just be realistic about what you can and can't do at that point. Um, so yeah, like what you're saying, the sympathetic nervous system, the stress response is known. And there's a lot of research around how it decreases your body's immunity, right? So you're going to these medical appointments, you're triggering, triggering things sometimes. Um, constantly, your sympathetic, sympathetic nervous system is out of sorts, and then um, eventually just malfunction. And then that's when they talk about the, the vagal nerve as well. And pituitary axis hypothalamus, I might've got that backwards, dysfunction. Cause then, and then the cascade of the other things, the hormones and everything goes. So and then for females, me, I have PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Let me tell you, that is beyond unpleasant, managed with med medications, like um, med meditations, everything I can possibly do. It is a roller coaster for me, emotion, like seven days before my menstrual cycle during um, I can rotate between they call it labile anger and knowing me, I'm, I'm usually a pretty chill person. PMDD symptoms, which is triggered by all the other health conditions trickle down to the hormones. Um, no dice in those. I unfortunately, I, I get angry. I get really angry. And I just sometimes I'll, I'll be like, wow, like snap. And then after that, logical again, I'm like, OK, OK, sorry about that. Like, you know symptoms. So that, I, I love that. I love that answer. That was really, really well done. And, 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 and I'm feeling like we're leaving Matt out here. So let's, let's get yeah. it. <laughs> Let me jump in, Rich. Come on. I'm trying to be patient here. So Lacey, you're making me think about, you know, Rich and I talked about this in great detail yesterday and, you know, when this podcast launches, it'll be weeks old by then, but the, an article came out on, on the time website, scientists have identified the Lyme disease gene responsible for severe symptoms. And in it, they have a ton of smart scientists and researchers from all around the world that have studied Lyme bacteria for the last 30 years across multiple continents. And their findings were that depending on the type of genetic expression that the Lyme bacteria itself presents when the patient, meaning us, our human beings, are infected, that it can literally go and cause a bullseye rash and you'll never get you'll never get sick because it just doesn't disseminate, it doesn't spread. Or it disseminates throughout your entire body to your brain, every single organ in your body. And in particular parts of the country, you're more likely to have it fully disseminate, right? And I think that really plays into what you just said, because if you are one of the unfortunate ones, and unfortunately, as time goes on, it's becoming more and more common that you get this disseminated type of 
gene when you're infected with a tick bite or however you're infected potentially sexually, which we're going to talk about. But when now, that happens, isn't it all also proteins? The proteins that are that are that are covering the bacteria, and and that's a part of the presentation. Yes, and the article. This is this is a brilliant article. I mean, if people just Google that the title I just said, the scientists have identified the Lyme disease genes responsible for severe symptoms. It talks about other factors as well: the genetic expressions, the proteins that surround the bacteria, and other things that they're looking at now that make the bacteria more impactful or virulent. I'm not saying, how do you say it, Rich? Virulent? I can't say the word. Virulent. So, you know, but I think that really plays in well because it talks about how it gets fully disseminated. And when that happens, your body is at war with this bacteria and then you have downstream effects. So if you are more susceptible to neck pain or back pain or, you know, heavy periods or inflammation because you have other genetics going on or other injuries going on, those things will get amplified, right? And that's why we see some people having a varying expression of symptoms because it's what is your genetics outside of Lyme, right? Not the genetics of the Lyme bacteria, but the genetics of you as a human being. And then what other pre-existing conditions or injuries do you have? And those things will be amplified, right? So I think you really outlined that very well. And I wanted to share that with our listeners. So that's my my yeah. spiel there. But yeah, let's, let's get to your diagnosis, Lacey, because we can geek <laughs> out with you for like 18 hours if we have to, right? Okay. So you are... Now 38 years old, and you were sick when you were 32. That's when you got sick, and it took you about two years to get diagnosed. So you're about 34 years old and you get diagnosed. Mm -hmm. What brought Lyme to mind? What made you think Lyme disease? And how did you finally get properly diagnosed with Lyme disease? And were there any co-infections? Oh, yes. Okay. So um, so eventually I did um so the person, this uh, acquaintance at the wedding who's like, Lacey, you should get tested for Lyme disease. So um, I knew that there was like a very low uh, statistic accuracy for the Lyme disease testing in the system. So I didn't necessarily expect that to be positive. After fighting, I did it. And of course it was negative, um, which makes sense given how inaccurate it was anyways. Um, so then I went to a naturopath. This was my first practitioner who kind of specialized in Lyme disease. And she... Um, sent the blood to Armin Labs, Armin Labs, Armin Labs for me. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so that's where, uh, that's where the Lyme disease came back. Um, and then the interesting part of that, and that kind of plays into the length of my, and why I'm so passionate about my current um, practitioner I'm with is that um, I, I, I felt like I kind of missed a little bit of how important it is to test for all the co-infections back then. So I did like what I could afford at the time, which was a cheaper bundle. Um, so I didn't test for a whole lot of other things, but mycoplasma pneumoniae came back. Um, and so at the time, that's I didn't test for everything. So um, so we went off that and, and she started treating. But unfortunately, my body was nowhere near ready to to be treating I had too many systemic other conditions going on at the same time with it and unknown co-infections that we never tested for until um, in the last couple of years. So now I now with this practitioner, we know I have Lyme and Bartonella, Elrichiosis, um, um, some dormant viruses, and then I had toxoplasmosis. Um, let's see here. Um, yeah, so generally, there I I can't re- recall the dormant viruses off the top of my head, but um, yeah, so so that's now. And then back then, um, it took I kind of bounced around many times, like people didn't know what to do with me. And then I eventually uh, switched away from that practitioner, 
because I realized I only healed about 5%. And I didn't know that I only healed about 5%. I was like preparing this back to work plan um, a couple years after that. I'm like, okay, great. I'm going ready to go back to work. But it's because my body became so numb. I couldn't feel how severe the pain actually was. So I couldn't tell people how terrible it was because I couldn't feel a lot of it. But that's my body protecting me from severe pain, right? It just essentially goes into a hibernation mode is how my doctor explained it. Um, so you can re redirect me. Yes. Yeah, so no, but that's okay. So very much relatable. And you describe that very well, right? But I do want to point out Armin Labs is one of the premier tick testing. I'm sorry, one of the premier tick-borne illness testing labs in the country out of Germany. And we actually recently had Dr. Armin Schwartzbach on the podcast on episode 374. People should go listen to that because that yeah. man is a mad scientist, brilliant, brilliant man who gave us so much great information about current testing. And they're constantly working on improving their testing and building out new tests. So really a lot of hope there too, to help measure how we're doing in our healing journeys, which right now is difficult with current testing. So that's, that's yeah. an aside. I'm going to check that. Mark my word. I will go back and listen to that one. So mad scientists, mad, yes, mad scientists, it. we love mad scientists <laughs> on this podcast. And the second part is toxoplasmosis. You know, we love Dr. Rolls. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows that he's an herbalist. He I'm on the restore kit, Richard on the restore kit. He's a huge piece of, you know, my healing journey. But toxoplasmosis, Dr. Rolls's father had his whole life. Right. So toxoplasmosis can be one of those opportunistic. I think it's actually a parasite. I don't want to misquote it, but it's, it's uh, believe, some yeah. sort of pathogen. Right. Yeah. So it's an opportunistic parasite, I believe. And it's sort of like Epstein-Barr virus. It's sort of like a lot of other things that many of us that are quote unquote healthy pick up and can manage. Which So you get toxoplasmosis, from, I believe, from undercooked meat and or a cat scratch. Is that correct, Lacey? You know, if you don't know, it's fine. I, I believe not 100% that's... sure. Okay. I don't want to say just in case. I'm pretty, I'm pretty <laughs> confident of that. But people can fact check me if they need to. So, okay. but what happens is Dr. Roll's dad had it his whole life. And his immune system manage it because if you've had mono, that means you've seen virus the rest of your life, right? So that's something that when you are compromised, it comes out and becomes an active infection or an active parasite. So you you tested positive for toxoplasmosis, which meant you were compromised in general, right? Which means your body was worn down. It's the point I'm trying to make. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in Dr. Rolls' dad's case is when he was immunocompromised, when he was a very old, you know, man. And that was what ended up presenting and got him very sick. And then that was part of the complications that, that ultimately, you know, led to his passing. But yeah. it's important to note a lot of these things aren't scary as an individual. It's collectively together when you have Lyme, Bartonella, Ehrlichia, Toxoplasmosis, right? Mycoplasma, that it just burdens your system and you have other things going on. So did your naturopathic doctor express that we're just, you know, and what was the treatment? So what treatment did your naturopathic doctor give you? Was it just Lyme treatment or was it more of a whole body restorative treatment? to kind of cover the thing we just discussed, meaning your body was compromised, your immune system, you know, nothing was functioning the way it should, your lymph system, your liver, probably all of your organs, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So that's the, the parts that unfortunately we, we weren't quite addressing as enough as needed. Um, but but we did start to treat the Lyme itself. So I started on the, uh, I think it's the Nutramedics, the Bandrel and Cemento. So parts of those protocol were incorporated. Um, and then uh, we did start on some binders, but my digestive system was nowhere near. And we it was just missing sort of some of the more in-depth things that the my current practitioner was able to all pull together. And which is why I, did, I never progressed past the point of essentially stop. I kind of slowed down because it was a new symptom every like week 
basically. So what, what I did with that naturopath is stop those new symptoms. It's like, okay, these are the ongoing things now, like complications, but it kind of put those symptoms on pause. And to me, I thought I was like 20% healed from that, but it's because I was numb and I couldn't feel my internal organs. I can feel those now. And let me tell you, they hurt sometimes. Like my liver, oh my God. I need to like, ask you to explain that before I forget. What do you mean you can feel those now? Because I think I can relate, but I want you to ex- describe that for our listeners when you said I was numb and I couldn't feel my internal oh. organs and now I can. Give us more detail about that. That in itself has just been so surreal to me. I want to say, I feel like 80% of me, I didn't have proper sensation of. And it was so hard because nobody like validated that for me in the medical world. I'm like, I'm telling you, you're telling me to put my spine like this. I don't know where my head is. My neck feels like a pencil. And I was like, I can't, a great physio, but nothing's activating. And actually it was a lymphatic massage specialist and she specialized in chronic illness around here. She works at the clinic. Um, She's been helping me regain sensation back. And now that we're regaining it back, I can slowly now start to put it in the right spot. So baby steps. Um, we're nowhere near like, like, hey, go to physio. We're going to start building. Uh, they, they're like, no, Lacey. Like, we can't tell you just to go lift weights. You, no, that's not going to help you. Right now, we're learning to feel parts of your body. And so um, so different degrees of tissues I lost sensation of. I lost sensation of my organs. Um, I lost like able, able to move my intestines to properly have bowel movements. Um, my, my liver, uh, I would get rib cage pain it would, on the right upper quadrant down to the left, up, um, left lower quadrant. Um, and, and then now I can feel that I can feel it's actually like my liver and the organs that's causing the pain. And I have strategies for that, um, that actually help. I, I don't, I don't use the typical de- detox methods. I just can't tolerate them. The one thing I can tolerate is hand manual lymphatic massage. Um, so my lymph, it doesn't matter what detox I do if my lymph system's not moving it properly. I get a flare up. I get toxic. I feel fluid build up in my head. I actually feel pockets in my scalp. Um, and I recently wanted to chop all my hair off. Um, asked my boyfriend if I could shave the top, just like a, a, a mohawk there. And he's like, oh, let's just hold off a bit. Um, I was like, no, it hurts. I want it gone. So now I can feel that. And it's surreal because I'm, I'm still numb. So I don't even know how sick I actually have been because I'm still learning what's not numb. And what I can actually, I would actually regain control over to move properly. So it's very disjointed. Let me counter that at least because I think you are far more in tune with your body right now than any healthy person I know. So I know you're still working on it and you can probably, (laughs) you can probably further tap into your, your own self, right. Or, Or being more in tune to your body, but it sounds like you are way further along than you think you are as far as yeah, reading, your, reading your body signals. We like to say, take boot camp, yeah. right? Yeah. But all right. So naturopath, 5% better, really yeah. just kind of putting the brakes on progression, but not really reversing the disease process exactly. or peeling yeah. back that layer of your, your compromised body as a whole. Yeah. What do you do next? Because you're still really sick. Yeah. So from there, I, I, I didn't have enough money to proceed with much because I then was off work. Right. So um, I worked as long as I could because I really loved working um, in the mental health area, doing the therapy that I did. And it, it kept me kind of going. Um, so that was a goal for the longest time. So I, I dropped down to like a thing with no or minimal benefits. And I worked when I could until I couldn't do that anymore. Um, and so money was a big factor for me. I, was, I felt I was like, well, I know what I need to do. I need an L- people were telling me you need an LLMD from the States or, a, you know, a fun- functional medicine slash Lyme specialist here who's an MD is with your complexity um so I felt really hopeless for a while there and I was like okay hey, I gotta go back to work so I can pay for this right that's when I when I didn't know in my head I was like oh I'm 35 percent healed but I realized it was 
barely 5%. I went back, it lasted five days. Uh, I had the worst flare up of my life after I called, called them. I was like, sorry, I can't come back to work. They're like, you want to be put it on hold? I was like, nope, not right now. I'll let you know when I can. Um, and so um, do you want to redirect me again? Yeah, yeah, sure. I just, I just want to highlight. So let's talk. Uh, there's so many things I want to discuss with you, but this, but this, I want to make sure we cover all the important things. So yeah, when you know, you at one point, I think it was in 2019, you had 80 plus symptoms, and then at your worst, at I think it was like mid 2022 ish, you had 140 different systems that you documented. That's I'm sorry, at 140 least. different symptoms that you yep. documented, and you were writing these symptoms down, right? So I, I mean. Can you give us an idea of some of your worst symptoms? And maybe let's have fun with this. Tell us your your worst symptoms. And then in a second response, in a second portion of that answer, tell us your most bizarre and weird symptoms. Okay. This is exciting. <laughs> okay. So my right off the bat, I know my worst symptom. Um brain inflammation. The reason I say that is because I went to the emergency for it a couple of times because at that point, my body was essentially shutting down from the pain. But the kicker is, oh, do regular things work for brain inflammation? Ibuprofen? No, it doesn't work. It doesn't doesn't do anything for me anyways. Um, so the typical medications, I went through all of them, the migraines. Yes, you know, it wasn't migraines. My brain hurt. And I was trying to say that, like, my brain hurts. And they're like, oh, it's okay. You have this type of headache. I'm like, sure, I do. But like my brain is telling you something, it's hurts. And so eventually now that I re- met the right people, like Lacey, your brain is inflamed. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, so brain pain and in medical world, they call that a thunderclap headache. So uh, by definition, the absolute most excru- excruciating headache or head pain you've yet, to, you've had at this point in your life. So I got that diagnosis in emergency. And I came back again. I was like, hey, I had that diagnosis with that one. This one's 10 times worse. I was like, why do you just keep getting thun- I'm like, was my diagnosis recurring thunderclap headaches now like um but it, it was exactly that it was like pressure in the brain and it, you literally just want to touch your brain and just be like it's okay in there like you're sore you think the um, lyme bacteria was in your brain that it penetrated your blood brain barrier and got into yes. your central nervous system so you know Definitely. dr mcdonald called it you had bugs in your brain right oh it's just that in itself is a symptom it makes me like because the, the the most like the most dysfunctional times I had is from the pain. Um, and if there's all the pain, all the other places, but you prioritize your pain when you have these illnesses today, it's a thunderclap. Um, but the pain here is nine out of 10, eight out of 10, blah, 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 all the way down. Uh, I'm not focusing on that because the thunderclap's a priority today. So that's the worst yep. one bizarre. And what you said, the bizarre. most bizarre and strange symptom that you've had. Okay. I'm going to say this, uh, I'm assuming not nothing's off limits and nothing's off limits yep some people might not not like to hear it some people have like a little gross threshold so um so the i really want to say this because it can be a little bit like i feel a little sheepish to say it say it but like so i'm going to say it has to do with my digestion but it also has to do with the structural integrity integrity of that area that became no longer able to do much for me either so to specify that um, I, these illnesses, one of my complications of not being able to have proper bowel movements because my intestines essentially worked minimally for many, many years. And, um, because your immune system is compromised, you don't have the ability to repair tissues in, I'll say at the rectal area. So I had chronic tearing for years. I'm going to say I'm um, probably five years for the first time now that my bot have a little bit of immune system working for me. Now I'm slowly, slowly able to repair the tissue and 
because it got so bad, I got scar tissue. Um, one of the doctors described it to me. He played hockey. He's like, so it's like you get hit in a hockey puck in the face. Like three months later, you get hit again. The scar never really fully heals. It can take like six months or a year for some people. Um, so he's like, basically in your case now, it's torn so many times, like the slightest little no tear again. And so I was just like, really? I was like, what do I do? Because it's not going to be a little dude, you know, like it's, it's painful. Um, I, I also lost function of my rectal muscle partially too. So I say that because, because I, and, and that goes back to. Well, can, can, Lisa, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but can you give us a little more detail? I'm just, I'm a little confused. Is it constipation that so, is, is it, you know, yeah. give us a little more detail. I, I, okay. I don't mean to put you in the spot if you're comfortable, right? No. Because yeah. so many people have these things and they think they're alone. And I think it's really important to highlight these, these things that a lot of people are afraid to talk about because yeah. we're not alone, right? This is not uncommon, but I think it's really important to share this. So can you give us detail? What is it? Was it constipation? Was it bleeding? Was it, was yeah, it, so you, was it, was it just you couldn't control your bowel movements? Was it, you know, you had to use diapers? Like, you know, not to be just, you know, could you give us the specific details? Absolutely. Okay. So in a nutshell, I'll say the diagnosis is chronic rectal tearing. Um, secondary to uh, gastroparesis um, and loss of function of the intestinal, like the intestines themselves. So basically what happened for me, some people can be different. It can be diarrhea. Me, I went severe constipation. Did not matter what strategy medical or naturopathic, I did so many strategies. At the end of the day, I lost the ability to properly relax my rectal mus muscle. I lost it. My brain st stopped properly communicating with all different spots on my body. The rectal muscle is a muscle, right? So when I was walking, going, jumping out, it's like, I'm telling my legs, come on, move. It's the same thing with the rectal muscle. Relax. No, your body has to be able to relax to relax the rectal muscle. Your body has to be able to have communication with your muscles to properly do what a rectal muscle does. It contracts, it releases. I couldn't do that. And I didn't have the abdominal control to push it out. Um, so it was a mess. It was a mess. Um, and it took many, many, but there is strategies for it. Like there is ointments that helped. Um, and basically they said you're on stool softeners, like as a joke for life. Um, but there's a very mild stool softener you can take um, if you are having tearing and it's not processed um, in the liver. So it, it just goes through, essentially brings water in and it softens it for you. So that's one thing, if that's your only problem, that's what I'm reliant on. I will be on stool softener probably for another year or two because of the fact rectal tearing the tissue there by default and inside the canal, minimum six months to a year to get anywhere close to fully healed because of the nature of those cells in there um so you don't mess around if you've got a tear there you've got to let it don't let it heal you've got to give it the care that it needs like and if you're same thing with these health things if you're rushing it like you know come on you know it's like stress your rectal muscles like i'm stressed nope i know what happened last time i'm not gonna relax like no dice well thank you for being so open and sharing yeah. all of those details because again so many people i think are gonna be able to relate to that and be appreciative of hearing that so thank you so so now now we were talking about your symptoms 80 in 2019 to over 140 in 20 in mid 2022 you you know you weren't working you tried to go back to work you, you realized you couldn't you left your naturopathic doctor money's a concern but you know you need to do more to heal so where do, what do you do next who do you partner with and what are you doing next to treat and deal with all these these illnesses um, so yeah, so to be honest, it was the online world that sort of got me in the right direction from that point, um, sort of hearing like the, you know, what they were doing that was working. And so I explored uh, the first, next person I went to in the small town. Um, he was a, like a chiropractor doctor that specialized in SIRS. 
Um, so he was um, sort of CERVIS is some chronic inflammatory response syndrome, right? So it's yes. really just a, a systemic inflammatory condition for your entire body, right? Yes, yes, correct. Yeah. So so that was his passion because, you know, he chose that. So we got onto the right track with doing some of the uh, blood work testing for that. Um, and they can actually test if your your uh, one of the genes that is known in trauma. So mental health is activated or not. And so we learned a lot of helpful information from that. Okay, I'm going to push you there. So can you just give us a little detail? There's a gene that's expressed if you if you're suffering from a certain mental health condition. Is that what you said? Um, so basically, um, how they explained it to me is um, there, we all have the ability to have the gene, and I'm happy to have people kind of um, chime in on this later on. Um, but in these part of the um, complete uh, SIRS testing that they do, they can see if that gene in you is currently act, like activated, turned on, um, like for trauma, so traumatic, um, so traumatic responses in your body, so trauma in particular. I don't know the exact name of it. I have to look into it, but it's, it was part of that. So it was sort of validating in a little bit. It's like, okay, you know, sort of got me, but I actually moved again. So then I actually switched to another does, temporary. Does that, does that play into neuroplasticity? So for example, I'm just trying to, in my head, and maybe I'm going down the wrong road here with this, but it, it sounds like, you know, the trauma from chronic illness, the trauma from being gaslit, you know, it, imp never mind the trauma has an impact on your brain pathways, but the disease itself and the bacteria, the bugs, the pathogens, the parasites, et cetera, et cetera, change your brain chemistry as well because these bugs are going into your brain they're altering the chemistry of your brain and they're changing the activity in your brain and what's lighting up and what's not right but i think mm -hmm. is what i'm hearing that that neuroplasticity approach that a lot of people in the line community take to reset those brain pathways you know while they're healing that though because of all that trauma because of the brain pathways a genetic expression is associated with those pathways that are harmful and and maybe inflammatory or nervous system dysregulating. And if you have a genetic expression, it's correlated with these damaged neural pathways, which is also a sort of deeper, a deeper trigger to SIRS, which is chronic inflammatory response system, which is mm -hmm. really systemic inflammation. Am I understanding that correctly? Because they're really nice. Yeah, I think you summarized that well. Um, and yeah, so as I'm thinking of it now, I'm, I'm trying to think of the words to explain it. Um, but when you said gene expression, that's that that's what is standing out to me, like a gene expression. Yeah. And and in some of their work, they I think people with our illnesses are prone to have it activated. Um, and then some people can actually go back if, if that's let's say their main concern is SIRS and none of these other things they can go back and see if that expression's now um, turn, not, turned off. I don't know if that's the right terminology. Um, perhaps if uh, Dr. Schumacher is listening, he can put a comment on here for us. <laughs> yeah, but so much of this is validated by, we've had other people on the podcast, whether it's, you know, Primal Trust, Dr. Kathleen King, who we've had on the podcast, or many of the other people who have these neuroplasticity and brain retraining programs argue that neuroplasticity and brain retraining will have an impact on your brain pathways and therefore result in a significant decrease in inflammation in your body. And you're saying there's science behind that and data, which is this genetic testing, which we haven't heard before. So I, I keep repeating yeah. it because it's so interesting to me. And I know, Rich, you want to jump in? I see you, you, you're jumping yes, out of your too. I, I think we we have to also bring in, into this conversation epigenetics, right? Because our, mm -hmm. our body is constantly going through a process of changing based on the, 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 uh, the genetic material that's not coded and our brain, of course, is it has a neuroplastic um, presentation where what wires together fires, I should say, what, you know, what, what, what fires together wires together. And we start to see changes, not just physiological change, but we're also seeing um, you know, neurological changes. And it's really a combination of both, of, of both 
Lyme using what makes us great, right? I mean, what, what makes us the dominant species on earth is that we're the most adaptive species because of neuroplasticity and because very few of our genes are pre-coded. What happens, unfortunately, when we're when we have these bugs in our body and we we are suffering from all of this inflammation, we have new genetic presentations, Matt, which is the which is now turning on genes that had not yet been coded, which is different from the way our brain is now is firing and then rewiring, which is getting us into these loops. And it's actually a combination of our neuroplasticity and our epigenetics that's causing us to have this new presentation as a sick person who's now in this in this illness loop. But isn't mm -hmm. isn't that epigenetics connected to the neuroplasticity? And how I understand it, and please, Lacey, jump in if I'm wrong here. Okay. Ep epigenetics is essentially like a switch, right? We're born with with uh, we we all have very standardized genes, but many of us have a subset of those genetic uh, sequences that can be a little bit different. And epigenetics, to me, I understand is something that you can be born with a gene that's turned off. It's like a light switch, the light's mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. Now, because of your chronic illness, because of your, your trauma and because of your pathogens and your, your all of your sickness, that neuroplasticity will trigger that the epigenetics. It'll turn that switch on, turn the light bulb on, which then means, boom, we're going to trigger more inflammation. So isn't it isn't it a compounding effect, or am I, or am I misunderstanding this? And again, this is more of, I think, a, a discussion. Yeah. It may, 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 some of this may not be known. Rich, feel free to correct me, too, if you think. Do you want to jump in there, Rich? Or you... oh, yeah, I'm not, I think, that, remember, one of the things that, that we know is that there are genes that have no coding at all, and then there are genes that have coding that is not expressed. And then we have genes that are coded and do have expression, right? So there's three different categories here, Matt. And I think what you're doing is you're sort of merging the uncoded genes, which is our epi epigenetics, and our coded genes that are not presented as opposed to uh, present presenting as opposed to the coded genes that are presenting. So we need to break it down into those three categories, right? And I remember when the you know the human genome project, because I'm so old, I remember when we were going through that, right? One of the things that they kept saying is we had junk genes. And what they meant by junk genes is they weren't coded, right? So we we have situations where um we we have coded genes that are not expressed, which are now being expressed because of the either the inflammation or because of the uh, of the infection. Is that, is that the have, light switch example, Rich, where they're coded genes that aren't expressed, meaning they're not turned on, right? Now when they're turned right. on, that's that's the light right. switch being turned on, creating inflammation, correct? That's different. That's different than what we're talking about here with, with the epigenetic presentation of genes that are not coded, but are now being coded in a way that are that are protecting us when we're ill but then keeping us ill, right? So we have to look at all of these different- Is that a repro like, a, like a reprogramming, essentially? It's reprogramming it's, us. It's a programming, not a reprogram, because they're un because they're but because they're not they're not programmed at all. And now they're being programmed in a way that's not serving us when we're on our healing journey. It's like a blank piece of paper that we're writing instructions on as we get sick and they serve us when we're sick, but those instructions are still valid after we're sick and they're no longer serving us, correct? Right. And again, and, and I'm not saying that that we know all of those answers, but I think that's what we're beginning to develop here is, is essentially, I think what Lyme is doing us or this polymicrobial infection is doing to us is it's taking what has allowed us to become a dominant species, meaning our adaptivity, and it's using it, using it against us, right? And it's now forcing us to adapt to being sick rather than rather than rather than being healthy. 
Lacey, what do you think about all this? Because now it's even more freaky to me because you have your, you have your, you will call them, you know, the, the, the middle part, which is basically we're turning that switch on, right? We're turning it inflammatory switch on because of our illness, which is bad. And then we have our, our blank piece of paper that we're writing instructions that at once served us when we were sick, but no longer serve us once we're not sick. So it's like a double whammy trying to heal in general, right? I mean, you know, and feel free to, to challenge Rich if you disagree with any of that too, but I think we're in a pretty good place here. Okay, well, maybe while, while we, we wait there, I will just say, and th this is actually kind of more of a query for the community. To, I'm curious um, to hear what people say about it. So when I think of DNA, I kind of think of cells and, and replication, right, um, of, of it, kind of, you know, reproducing the same thing, cells reproducing. Um, so I am curious from, like, the people that specialize in genetics or whatever, even your guys' thoughts on it, um, how the replication of a turned on, um, for example, um, like PTSD or trauma gene works. Does it keep then producing that unhealthy like cell and gene? Um, and then my other just kind of, um, so the, the turning it on, that makes sense to me, like that these illnesses and st such has turned it on. Um, whereas perhaps many of us have the ability to have it turned on, but um, in our cases, it is turned on. And it also makes me just a quick thing from the human experience. When I have a little bit too much stress, I automatically feel like the internal rotting from my my physical illness they go with the same and then next from that goes up my spine and then goes back into my head pain um so just kind of yeah so the neuroplasticity is is a lot about that topic too um but yeah for me on the human level it i feel internal rot that's the only way i can describe it it's much much better now but as soon as i have a little bit stressed as soon as i rush too much as soon as i'm overwhelmed in my like you know trying to do too many tasks I feel sick in my stomach, rot. And that's how I felt through my illnesses, much less now. So just a random thing to throw out there. I don't really know all, all the answers on this, but I'm very curious. And I, curious but, but I, think, I think that's very much in line with what our reality is, right? Because I've been spending a lot of time thinking about thinking about uh, immune dysfunction, right? Because it's really, really what's happening is we have this delicate balance act in our, in our, in our body where we have all these microbes that are constantly coming into our system and we have an immune system that is managing all of those bugs that are in our system, right? And then, and then what happens is there are there are events where where we are now suffering from immune dysfunction. Some of which could be the the sy sympathetic expression of our nervous system, where we are limited to fight fight flight freeze faint and fawning, and now our immune system is being compromised. Now, what's happening is, as as you were pointing out, we have all of these we have all of these. Um, viruses and bacteria and protozoa that are in our system uh, that we've picked up over time and our body is no longer able to manage them. So many of those now opportunistic um, uh, uh, pathogens are taking off. But even more importantly, one of the reasons why the largest part of our immune system is in our gut is because we are constantly bringing more and more pathogens in with the food that we eat. So it makes sense that we're gonna have the largest uh, element of our immune system in our gut. Now our gut is a mess. Our immune system is being overwhelmed, and we're bringing in more and more and more and more, you know, of, of these pathogens that are that are that are that our gut can no longer manage because it's overwhelmed with, in part, you know, our brain haven't been rewired, and we're in we're in the sympathetic presentation, in part with all the inflammation that we have and the impact that having either turning on genes or programming unprogrammed genes so that they're they're no longer serving us. And we just and we just become chronically ill, you know, like we, it just becomes overwhelming. And what's happening is 
just by virtue of eating, we're bringing in more bugs, which are now not managed and we're just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. So let me throw a question at you for Lacey, because that seems really scary to me, right? And that can be extremely triggering to people listening to this. And I want to counter that with that as we begin to heal, so as we begin to decrease the microbial load of the pathogens in our body, that will indirectly cause us to have less inflammation, less bugs in the brain, and less triggers for our genetics and for our inflammatory responses. That That's a partial piece to help. And as we start to regulate our nervous system through various means, whether it be herbal, whether it be brain, you know, neuroplasticity, whether it be through uh, HPA access, you know, tools, et cetera, et cetera, or vagus nerve stimulation, et cetera, et cetera. You have the ability to, when you have that piece of, as you called Rich, the co- the coded genes that were turned off when we turned on with that light switch, we can turn that light switch back off again as we regulate our nervous system. So I think this seems really yep. scary, but the solution is not that hard once we understand it and and not to make it seem simpler than it is, but it is attainable and it is achievable. So Lacey, what do you I mean, think about that? I mean, you're, hitting, you're hitting on the head, but you, you missed out one other piece, which I'd like Lacey to comment on as well, because okay. as, as a mental health practitioner, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we also have the ability to use our mind <clears throat> to reorganize and 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 reconnect um, the the our, our our brain and our neurological system. Right, that's what mindset is: is learning how to use your mind to reorganize your brain and your nervous system so that it will function correctly. So it's not just it's not just helping our immune system through reducing the microbe load. It's not just using herbal protocols, which will of course um, also help us to manage many of these physiological things, but it's also learning how to use your mind and your mindset so that you can reorganize your brain and your nervous system so that you will be you will be uh, uh, presenting in the parasympathetic uh, state, which will then help you to heal. Yes. That's a lot, that's a lot Lacey, sorry. <laughs> that's a lot we threw at you right there. <laughs> Okay, uh, so so in short, and I'll use myself because um, I hear that people are, find it helpful if I speak just not the medical. So a little quick here. So um, I had to do both. So both. So when I was doing, like I was seeing a therapist for general counseling stuff, like multiple years throughout this, but we came to a roadblock where the root where you guys will appreciate root medicine. And that is also in certain areas of mental health therapy, right? So some dig into it more than others. Um, So for me, the surface level therapies at that point, I I hit a roadblock and my stress responses were too ingrained with past and more recent traumas um, that the, the strategies and the therapies around that were affecting my body's ability to tolerate and heal because I was having too many flare ups. So with that being said, I needed to properly, I'm going to say support and treat and lower the pathogen levels in conjunction. So it's everybody's different if they can tolerate the right types of therapies, because you do absolutely if you think about it, you use a random example, this is not pre thought of so bear with me. Okay, so let's say my shoulder um, gets this wicked like infection of sorts and um, swollen and can't move it for a long time. Now let's think of your brain. So your skull prevents it from 
being able to balloon out and the physical signs, but at the end of the day, inflammation, you know, it's swelling in the brain. It affects the brain's communication with everything. So you can't really leave out the brain in your healing. You can't, you can't, because unfortunately what you guys are saying, um, like I said, so me with so many mental health tools available, I had to start addressing my traumas and my environment dynamics and how that was affecting me. And the only way that it worked out for me, I sort of had to do a little bit of it at the both with the supporting my body and treatment. Cause I don't want to jump to treatment without properly supporting because that's really hard on your mental health. So you have to be realistic. So mindset is very key, but me as a mental health professional, it's strategic because you really need to be realistic about what you can do and what state you're in. And, and it's helpful to have someone like a, a therapist or, or a medical professional to, to help you with that because you're gonna over, probably overshoot it. So for me being too positive, like I'm fine, I'm fine. That actually hurt me because I, I prevented me from properly healing the root cause, which is actually, this is really, really painful and debilitating for me. I can't keep being positive because I'm, I feel like absolute crap today. Um, so it is a balance and the mindset is key for the fact that you have to kind of retrain it, right? It's like, oh, I'm used to being inflamed. I'm just, I'm I'm dramatic, like making this dramatic, like puffy brain, it's like swollen, the different like, spe- you know, spheres and stuff is swollen. It's not doing what, and now as you're you're taking the pathogen load out, slowly, slowly coming out of the brain, um, it's not that it's gonna start shrinking, um, but it's like, hey, I'm used to operating this, swol- you know, this inflammation bubble, um, you know, it's just a little bit like, hey, help me remember because neuromuscular harmony is common with this stuff and you the lack of your brain to communicate properly with the rest of your body is impaired whether it be the brain or spinal cord um so it is helpful to do the brain mindset is key within reason um without overshooting it because we struggle we can't do the same tasks we used to those things feel good to people they're depression strategies for the sake that they make people's moods better we can't go and do 60 things these days, right? Um, so we're constantly what we, you know, trying to operate within our means because that's actually going to help our mental health in the long run too, operating with not overshooting, but 100% mindset, um, treating and decreasing those pathogen lo- loads, um, just even the basic support from my practitioner. I was like, oh, it's a little bit better, a little bit, it just got a little bit better, a little bit less terrible, a little bit less terrible, a little bit more less terrible. Not terrible for five minutes. Okay. And so the brain is, I did trauma therapy. Um, so I did EMDR because um, you, you have to get to the surface root cause, right? So other people believe in psychedelic assisted therapies. Um, that's all, um, hopefully, if you get connected to the right type of practitioner, therapist and medical team. Um, but yeah, you can't leave your brain out. And some people with past history of traumas, unfortunately, it's a little bit more complicated, but it's very doable. Um, do you hear all of my stuff? Uh, to be honest, I, I wasn't really sure to get to where I'm now. I'd say probably about 65 at least percent healed and I'm still going upward. Um, just, just even me to have a little reprieve at like, hey, 30% healed, 40% healed. Uh, once you're in that, you get a little like relief without the expectation of being fully healed too soon because that's in some cases it's not a realistic expectation. And these illnesses are the first thing in my life that stopped me. I was like, I don't know. They might be, they might beat me. Um, I had that mindset, but it's important that people allowed me to have that mindset 
because everything's invalidating, you know, in medical world. I was like, can I at least just have that true thought, like without having to change it to positives? Like, I'm scared. I don't know if I can do it today. But, you know, I slept the next day. I'm like, okay, I need that sleep, a little bit of sleep and I can, I can do it. And so just real, for me, not everybody, realistic approach is very key. What I, what I can actually do, because I keep over, I, even still, I overshoot it. I get excited. I'm like, oh, I'm uh, my boyfriend's like, do you need some help? And like the neighbors are looking They're like, are you her dude? I'm like, no, no, I, this is the first time I can push the lawnmower on the grass. And they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so little things like that for me are key. Felicity, talk to us about, you talked about as you were doing things and a little bit here and a little bit there. Once you left your naturopathic doctor and you went to the community and you found things to do, what were some of those things that helped you get to where you are today? Because you didn't make much progress after leaving your naturopath, but you've made significant progress since then, obviously. So what are, what are some of the top things you did that were successful for your own experience in, in healing? Okay, so letting people help me with a GoFundMe because other, you know, and um, people like kind of biting the, the I'm going to say bullet, I don't know if that's the right frame of speech, but like to ask for money was super uncomfortable because I could not do it. I, I couldn't. And I, I was like, so I had to do that, allowing people to give me loans, donations, um, because then I could get to the, the type of practitioner that has that full background approach. And that is the person that can treat me. Um, there's people like me, they're considered air quotes in the screen, chronically complex ill patients um, and that's what my functional medicine doctor said to me she said you have some risk factor you know things that we're looking at they're going to make you more sensitive more complicated um, but she said I know I know I know everything that's going on with you and I was like what and so slowly she brought me in the loop and she actually consulted with a um, naturopathic doctor in the states um, and I still uh, I still have little little follow-ups with her because my functional medicine doctor I have a great respect. She learns from everybody around her. So she learns so much from this. Um, she calls herself a Lyme specialist as an as a ND in the States. And the parts that my functional medicine doctor feels slightly out of scope, she contacts her. She says, go, go see her. She knows what to do about it. And that's where things like the cling heart method and treating parasites, even though it may or may not still be showing up. And I've been having a lot of progress from that parasite treatments and stuff. And so that is key for me to at least not to save me, but to at least have someone that knows what's going on in in all the areas of my symptoms and issues. That was key. Uh, allowing people to help me with money because the reality is I, I couldn't make it. I was too sick. Um, so asking, ask, like, you know, I had to ask people for money and I appreciate so much all the help I've got. Um, I could not pay for my treatments without it. Um, my, my dog and kind of, um, support from people in my life. My dog has been key. Um, so little things like that and treatment wise, treatment wise. Now it's addressing all, she calls them fires. And so the analogy of like, like, Basically, every time I see her, she's like, what's your worst thing going on now? Let's put out that fire and then try to assess the, the systemic stuff, try to decrease the pathogen load. Um, she, she said, you got to work on your trauma because unfortunately we see that now as, as complicating your healing. And so really all that's stuff together. I might be forgetting things, but. Lisa, what are the tools though that you're using to decrease the microbes? Is it antibiotics? Is it herbals? You know, what have you done to knock down the line, the bark, the lichia, the toxoplasmosis to, to help your immune system win back the battle and keep these things at bay or eradicate them depending on what they are. So, you know, what are those tools you were using the antimicrobials? 
yeah, so herbals I'm still doing. Um, and to be honest, my practitioner, she doesn't just stick with one. She just grabs what I need from all different protocols. Um, so we are, we are actively with um, herbals, killing, uh, addressing, not killing, suppressing the Lyme. Um, and we are also trying to suppress with herbals the Bartonella. And um, she actually has me on herbals for viruses. And I've done both prescription medication and herbals for parasites. So I'm on the cell core parasite treatments right now. And we cyclically have been doing them on and off for about half a year. And I get a little bit more progress each, each full moon that I do them with because of the notion that they're more active. Yeah. Um, and so that's how my digestive system is now allowing the rectal tearing to heal. So, um, so um, antimicrobials is the primary source um, and also treating the viruses, um, co-infections and supporting every system that is affected with the proper things that it needs, the cellular, all the way down to the cellular um, mitochondria. and With, with herbals and, and yep. various herbal tools. Okay. Yep. So one of the things and you mentioned cell core seems to be the core the core funnel or the core hub around all your your herbals right um yeah so cell core right now for me is pretty big i want to say some of the other herbals they come from the cowden and what is, i'm drawing a blank on the other cowden protocol cowden and... protocols like by nutrimedics makes the cowden protocol stuff right nutrimedics yeah and then what's the other uh herbalist drawing a blank on his name but there's another uh herbal protocol Call fellow and I feel terrible for remembering Buner? his name. Steve oh yeah, Buner's... yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, Steve. so some of those incorporated in there as well. Buner protocol. Um, yep. Yeah. So one of the things I know we're really we're, we're getting tight on time here, but one of the things I really want to make sure we talk about with you is, as somebody who is a nurse and has worked as an STI or a sexually transmitted infection, you know, we used to call back in the day sexually transmitted diseases or STDs. You worked as an STI nurse. You have your thoughts and personal experiences around the sexual transmission of Lyme, which is still up in the air, right? The, C the CDC has come out and said that Lyme is congenital, meaning a mother can pass Lyme disease on to her, her child. We know that Lyme disease and co-infections can be spread via blood transfusions, right? So blood transfusions can, can carry the disease as well. Obviously, tick bites is another thing that's become, you know, everybody knows you can get infected from a tick bite. So these, are, these have become the norm. But the sexual transmission of Lyme disease is still such a heated debate in the world. So what are your views and, you know, how does your background support your views and your personal experiences with Lyme and the sexual transmission of this disease? Yeah, so, so working, um, yeah, working in the area of STI and sexual health, um, it really gives me sort of a unique perspective um, because like in our school programs, we do a little bit of the sciences. And so I see... Uh, the other people kind of talking about it, I see some research, you know, the ones that collect it for populations. And I actually see some of these like practitioners, like medical doctors, I read some cool stuff um, as well. So I love to see it all coming together now. So that's good for me. But um, for me with my STI background and my passion for digging to the bottom holes for answers, um, it's kind of helped me sort of come up with some points about the query of STI transmission um, that are, there's no one answer for it yet, but they, I hope that it sort of brings 
together those areas that I mentioned a little bit, um, because I don't know if in the States you have healthcare that does just STI, but there are actual like um, where I'm from, like clinics where we see just STI and stuff. So that's been a really good experience for me. And um, yeah, I really, so my own personal experience is what prompted my query into it because I was given some information from that first uh, naturopath that it is 100% transmitted, 100% partner get, gets tested, you know, I was like, well, what do I do? I'm like terrified now, like, you know, 100%. I'm like, okay, so I'm terrified. Um, but I was, I was at that point still very, very ill, um, cognitively, right? So I, I was like, okay, she's, she's saying this, you know, tell the partner, like, we should probably get tested, like, I probably passed it to you, right? So I went with that. I was like, sure, okay. I, I don't know much about it at this point in time. Like, um, but then when I actually looked into it more in depth um, and with my critical eye, and even more recently when I'm a, my brain is more healed, um, there's some some really good research, but it's still a query basically in my in my mind. Um, and I can understand where some of those queries are coming from now. Um, but I would love if to sort of um, I'd love to sort of lead off like with where those queries are. So um, a couple of those things are, um, so for example, I know there's one study reference um, uh, where partners were, were tested for Lyme specifically, um, and then they retested, I don't know the name of that study off the top of my head, but um, people were retested and then their partners um, tested positive. So the first point, if you're okay, I'll just throw it out there to you guys. Okay, so I think we can, you guys tell me, we can all agree that it has been found in genital secretions, so yep. male fluids and female fluids of the vagina. No debate there, none. Okay, okay, good, okay, so good. Yep. We can start off on that point. Yes? yes, yes, it has been found there. The only thing with that though is in different worlds of health, because we find it in the genital secretions, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's sexually transmitted. So to give you just a general example is COVID is also found in genital and rectal fluids, but it's not considered an STI per se. I did not know that. So there's a lot of other things that are found like bacterias. Uh, I can give not right now, but like more specific examples. So it's just like when we are saying that we can't forget that you know, that's where the STI piece kind of pulls it, to, it together. We can't forget that other things are found in there, but they are not classed as sexually transmitted. There's a lot more research needed to say if it, you know, if it just because it's found in the genital secretions, if it is sexually transmitted or not. So that's my first point. Is that because <laughs> it can't survive the transmission? Is that because it, you know, what's the, what's the, why, why do some things, why are some things present in, let's say, semen, for example, and, and not infecting the other person but some things are present in semen and can infect the other person right like well how does that work yeah that's a, a very good question so i think that with with lyme disease there's still just a lot of general query about that but one of the queries that came up is um when they are testing the fluids uh are they are they are they for sure differentiating if it is the semen because semen can actually live in a vag vaginal canal for up to seven days. Um, so is it is it semen? Is it vaginal fluids? Have we properly separated that? Have we properly isolated all the variables? And so it's really good starting points. It's just we're not quite there yet. Um, so um, I don't know. I don't know that I have the best answer to say why some things are or aren't. Um, it's just that. Um, so what I what I have read is that um, some people's immune systems, for example, there is a, a MD out of the states. I was I was reading his thoughts on it. Um, and so, uh, so he, he was saying how some people's immune system sort of, they just never ever have symptoms, but they've still sh show an exposure to it, for example. Um, so with STIs, um, 
some are contagious during certain periods of time and then they become not contagious. So we haven't considered that in line. So there's way, way, way too much yet, but 100% I understand why people are querying it. And it's for the reason, it's it's a very scary thing and you, you don't want to pass it to your partner if you can try to prevent it. And so that's where for me, even currently, I will still uh, use precautions just in the case, even from a query. And that's where, where I've kind of got to and the reasons I got to my query of it. Um, and then my next topic would be syphilis, unless you guys want to jump in on that one. I or think so we've had a comment here. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about the uh, the research that you're you're citing because I, I've looked at it as well, right? So the so what the research showed was that uh, was that partners who have Lyme disease, one, one partner has Lyme disease. In most cases, the other partner has Lyme disease as well, right? And and that's when they were testing both the sperm and the vaginal secretions. They were finding that there was the 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 Borrelia in each of the partner's um, uh, secretions. And when Brian Fallon wrote his book on Lyme disease, his argument was that one is not necessarily causing the other. He believed um, in part because the study itself had not been replicated and in part because all of the people who were testing positive, both partners having tested positive, were living in a tick endemic community. And his argument was the reason both partners were were testing positive in their in their uh, in their secretions is because they were both getting bitten by ticks all the time because they were in uh, they were in uh, tick endemic communities. So uh, we have to be really careful with these causal connections. Just because we're seeing something doesn't mean you know it is being caused by um, you know by the by the other right. I think yeah. the other argument that Fallon made in his book was that. Syphilis is different than than Borrelia because syphilis can live outside of the body, whereas Borrelia cannot. And that's one of the reasons why they have they have so many difficulties studying, um, you know, uh, Borrelia in the lab. So mm -hmm. since you're going to about to take the step, Lacey, to the to the syphilis um, conversation, because a lot of people like to believe because they're both spirochetes, they behave the same way and therefore they're both sexually uh, uh, trans. Uh, mitable, that perhaps uh, just because we're seeing something doesn't mean that they're causing each other. Perhaps it is because we are living in tick endemic communities, and perhaps because Borrelia cannot live outside of the human body, that it may not be sexually transmitted. I'm going to ask you to comment on one more thing, which is, do you think if it is sexually transmitted, it's more likely to be transmitted from male to female rather than from me female to male? All right. <laughs> Lots Thank of hard questions there. tonight. Yeah, <laughs> you guys are going. You guys are not going easy on me today. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Brian Fallon. That's awesome to hear his name because I have queried some of the same things you're saying he queried, and that so so basically because I want I want like most of us, we just want to know yes or no. Do we? We don't want to give it to someone, right? You know, nobody wants that on their conscience, um, and it's yeah, it's there's unfortunately sometimes we don't know till after, right? So. Um, but where I'd like to see uh, sort of some further studies going uh, is sort of merging merging it into a way that the hopefully it can sort of get because there's like the science research, right, like the researchers, and then there's like sort of medical, like medical um, journals and things like that. So um, with those studies, exactly that. So from this, like a general, I'm not a scientist, not a scientist, general science perspective. You, ha you have to, in order for, so let's use that one study that we're all kind of referencing um, where the partners tested positive. Um, so the best scientific um, 
articles that then come into medical art articles and come into medicine, they've been critiqued and peer reviewed by, so for example, so it would be ideal that STI specialists uh, jump on that. And, and exactly that, the reason you, you can't, you can't as a medical professional, uh, you have to be very careful. Like, so if you say to somebody, this is, you know, sexually transmitted, you don't necessarily see if you, unless you work in STI, the emotional repercussions of that. You know, now I'm nervous, anxious. I'm taking on that guilt. I pass it to my partner. Partner's like, you pass it to me, right? Um, so we want to be really, really certain. So there's a lot of politics around why this stuff has an advance too. Um, but also as a healthcare professional, you just need to be cautious of that uh, because of the fact when I'm looking at some of the research, unfortunately, to make it like, not that it's, I don't want to say how to say this, but to make it like credible so that the medical world will latch on to it, you have to, those, what you call sort of, um, so there's variable variables and then sort of uncontrolled variables in science experiments. Um, those uncontrolled variables, we need to have an explanation on that. We need to reach, and then people need to critique that. And then we need to go from there and then see what we think about that article type of thing. Then we need to have it assessed by STI specialists, the medical world, critique it. Because until it's critiqued like that, that's how it gets stronger. So the, these people that put themselves on the lines, um, I don't know the person's name that did that, is amazing because it's created a fantastic query. Um, it's just my 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 rationale in doing this is is to get try to get medical world to latch onto it. Those things need to happen first. Um, and because of the the uh, mental aspects that come with um, saying that, um, so based on STIs, like they go they're replicated multiple times, right? And we know exactly. The variables we know the time frame is it is it contagious you know before during or after treatment syphilis is is not contagious after treatment so that's one difference right there that i really want to highlight yeah they're both corkscrew bacteria yeah they're um they have phases uh, but syphilis is very different because it, you can have rashes and blisters like all over your body and they can be contagious right but lyme disease doesn't necessarily mimic that exactly so it's where the STI world, I hope they jump in on it and, and start start critiquing that because it will only make it stronger and then get it one step closer to medical world latching on in a language that they they think is safe for them to start putting that into practice. And so it's a, a long ways away from that. As a Lacey, I, I was going to comment on that because I understand the emotional component for somebody who's already so gone through such a difficult journey with the Lyme experience that if it's not sexually transmitted, why put somebody through that, right? But I, I also want to say that I know people, well, there's, there's multiple parts to this. The first part is when you, with congenital Lyme, for example, the I think the accepted belief is that if you have an active infection, it's way more likely to transmit it to your child. If you don't have an active infection and you think it's been disseminated enough in your body where you're just managing it and you haven't eradicated it, you're likely not going to transmit it to your child is the general belief today. So I think the same rule would apply, and again, making a lot of assumptions here, would apply with sexual transmission. If it were sexually sexually transmissible, the likelihood would be significantly greater if you had an active infection versus if, versus if it were dormant and you were living, let's say, in remission and a symptom-free, happy life. Many of us who have an active infection are so impaired that we're probably not engaging in activities that we'd have to worry about transmitting it sexually, right? Some of us are, but most of us aren't. But mm -hmm. for those of us who are now feeling better and looking to get back out there and get back to our lives, the thoughts always there of, is this sexually transmissible, right? And I know people who are healthy enough in their journeys and have gone back out and have started dating and don't want to think about it and therefore are 
maybe not making the best decisions when it comes to sexual practices because they're not thinking about it because they don't want to be bothered by the emotional impact of mm -hmm. thinking about they have now a sexually transmissible infection, but that's not really fair to their partners, right? So on one hand, we want to be careful to not further traumatize and invoke these emotions in people if it's not true, but because it may be true, we want to make sure that we do make people aware of it in the community so when they are healthy enough because they can get healthy enough to engage in those activities again, that they protect their partners from a potential infection, right? So what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so I'll just kind of jump back and say, I, I do understand the practitioners that are starting to say it. So I think that just with that, the wording is very important. So the word, it's in query, you know, it's query, you know, it's in query, it's in progress of researching it to, to, to get it to a point that it withstands um, regular scientific critique, as well as um, medical professional in the STI world critique, withstands and it gets all the same um, attention that, let's say, just for example, chlamydia is an STI. Um, it's, it's been tested all different things. We know when it's transmissible, when it's not. Um, I'll just jump briefly, not to complicate things. I'll just use a virus, a sexually transmitted virus, um, for example. They've they've now with those they've isolated certain strains. These strains of of HIV, blah 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 blah. You know these strains. Um, actually, they're not sexually transmitted. These are just these are not considered, and they they split them up. These strains sexually transmitted. These strains not. So we're just not there yet. Is it possible that Lyme is sexually transmitted? Definitely, definitely possible. I definitely am querying it, and that's sort of why I'm starting to dig up more research on it. Um, so it's definitely possible. So me, if you came to see me as a sexual health nurse, for me to pr protect the patient from the possibility of harm that I now know there's a query, I would say something along the lines of, I need you to know this. There's a very strong query. Here's here's why you'll need to look at the research on your own, um, just in case you can take precautions. Um, and just in case, definitely, I suggest taking precautions and this, it is inquiry and kind of go from there. Very strong query. There's just not enough research yet for medical world to latch onto it or for it to withstand the critiques in scientific, scientific journal, word, journal world yet. Um, so 100% you can get back at it and your hypothesis um, I def definitely ca I can't say for sure, but I would hypothesize the same thing. Most bacteria is once they're kind of fully treated, like so syphilis, um, it's actually like not nearly as long of a treatment for most people as you'd think. Um, but when you go back and retest, it still shows as you've been exposed to it in the blood. But but the education is is you're not transmissible. Carry about your business, right? So we can hypothesize some of those theories. But what we want to eventually get is those things in studies so that we can, you know, but we, unfortunately, we're just not there yet. So the default uh, for people to protect their patients you know, definitely you probably want to take precautions. There's a strong query. Uh, we don't yet have like the full research on it, but um, if you're worried, there's a very strong, so the wording is very important. I steer across myself from saying it is 100% sexually transmitted. Um, that's that's just because I have not yet found enough evidence for me to, to say that. Um, I would love to one day. I'd love to say if it is or isn't, um, but you can definitely, yeah, you can definitely still practice. I have heard from a lot of people where their partners have not tested or uh, maybe they've just never ever had symptoms or anything like that. They've tested negative. Even my situation um, with a past experience, uh, I tested positive um, for, as I said, um, uh, Lyme disease. And because of the recommendation, we paid the money to have my partner tested at the time as well, um, who actually tested negative for Lyme disease, but a completely 
different strain of it that I tested negative for. Um, so it, it puts all these queries uh, into the, the testing and stuff again that we just don't have yet. But for me, I started sort of reaching out to online communities and saying, hey, are you guys comfortable to tell me? Have you tested your partner? You know, where are you getting your, your evidence from? And un unfortunately, it just sort of went down a rabbit hole. Of, I just can't quite see what evidence I need yet to say that. But 100%, I want to protect people. And, and that's probably the intention of these practitioners is probably good intention. So um, I'm not critiquing that. I just, uh, if anything, I just like the wording to change a little bit so that we can start using the same wording in the community, similar. Like it's a very, very strong query. Here's the research. We just don't yet have the science yet to back it up or, or the critiques to put it into medical world yet. Agreed. Alicia. I just think we simply don't know yet, right? And yep. what I, what, where I don't fully agree is you're saying, you you tell everybody there's a query out there. And I think what you mean is that it's, we don't know it's being researched and we don't have definitive answer, right? That's what you mean by that? Exactly. Yeah. So what, unfortunately, in the States, it may be different than it is in Canada. When I first got infected, I remember asking my infectious disease doctor, is it sexually transmissible? It's one of the first questions I asked, I remember. And the answer was a hard, you know, hard no, absolutely not. This is not a sexually transmissible disease. So that was a traditional infectious disease doctor. But then yeah. if you go to Google and you look at the you know, the CDC website, the Center for Disease Control, or you if you look at the the National Infectious Disease Society, right? Or I forget what it's called. Uh, I think it's NIA, whatever the acronym is. Mm -hmm. They yeah. say the same thing. It is not sexually transmissible. And they cite it with such with such authority and fact, right? So when you're saying you tell people it's under investigation, that's mm -hmm. not what I see here in the States with my own experience with my doctor and also with oh, what we okay. see in all of our federal institutions, the CDC and the National Infectious Disease Society, right? So what are your thoughts about that where... You know, these agencies are putting out all these these in this these statements as in you know empirical facts when in reality we just don't know, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Uh, some 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 people might not like that I say this, but I find when I'm looking around and I see the places that are like hard yes or hard no, it's it's usually somewhere like for me, it's usually somewhere in between because medicine is never a hundred percent in anything. At the best, it's ninety nine point nine 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 nine. Um, so it's hundred percent, like I guarantee the person that said the hard no and the hard yes, most of the time when I actually speak to them and what sources they're referencing, they actually haven't done their own research on it yet. Um, that's, that's what I've been finding. So in Canada, I will clarify, it's not, we are, we are outliers here when, um, so when I, I should clarify, when I say it's under investigation, it's, it's by the communities that are invested in. So like when I, when I say under investigation, I'm investigating it. <laughs> you know, not the rest of the medical community here. I'm investigating it with like the other, looking at stuff from the United States, kind of combining all of that. But I see the hard no's. I, I did a little bit of browsing for this interview. I see those hard no's. I see them on the CDC. Um, so, but I then, the way I am, I looked up what research are they using? So I'll go and click on the actual journals that why they're trying to tell me it's a hard no. Like, so I'm, I'm sitting here saying, convince me. If you're saying hard no, then tell me why. What are you referencing? So what some of them were referencing tend to be animal studies. So similar reproductive tracts are things like mice and rats, um, but some of those things extended to other animals. I can't quote them, but four-legged friends of sorts, if I remember correctly. So some of them were saying hard nose because um, it, in animals, so I can't remember if it's mice in this one, it, it didn't pass. So they're, they're saying that because in certain situations it didn't pass, uh, that's a hard no. Um, so that's, but, but you, I can take that and have a heyday with that, right? And say, okay, let's critique that, right? So that's not necessarily enough for a hard no either, right? 
um, because they are different and we've not, you know, done that in humans. So a lot of them are referencing animal studies. So I think that they, because they have an animal study to reference that says hard no, um, it's kind of the same thing. Um, I will dig into that hard no and be like, okay, convince me of your hard no then. But that's allowed you to become a more intuitive patient because you don't just accept everything you're being told. You question it, which is super important in our healing journeys, because especially with this disease, nothing is written in stone. Right. And we're all of our experiences different. I think it's an important takeaway. And I'm going to hand it over to Rich because I know we've had you on for over two hours. I have a oh billion more questions in my head, which oh, means no. we're going to have to do some follow up work with you. So I'm going to shut up okay. and let Rich kind of like conclude this with this, you. But... but I'd like to say with this topic a little bit longer. Right. Because. In the end, every patient has to make his, her, or their own decision. Every partner has to have a conversation with their partner or partners about uh, what they think would be the best approach that they should take. Uh, but what we do know is clear is that if you get bitten by a tick, you could get Lyme disease, right? We also know that there are going to be downstream effects of someone having Lyme disease, which include uh, congenital blood transfusion, and sexual transmission, right? But we also have to recognize that we're in the Stone Age as it relates to Lyme disease research, right? Because we, we recognize that just the one form of bacteria that, we're, that, that we've been talking about, Borrelia, has many, many different strains, and the different strains are going to present differently in your body. We recognize, we recognize that the tick and the Borrelia in the tick will change the, the, the Borrelia and, 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 and in some cases superpower the speed at which the, 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 the Borrelia is going to behave depending on the species of tickets in. We've learned from some of the practitioners and some of the researchers we've, we've interviewed like uh, Dr. Ava Shapi, who shared with us that what's happening with, with, the, uh, with the bacteria is that there's shape-shifting going on and there's an exchange of there's an exchange of proteins between these various microbes, some of which are harboring, some of which were being collectively spit into us when the tick, when the tick ultimately does spit all of these germs. It could be up to two different, 200 different germs that are, that are being spit into us. So for anybody to say that they definitively know that this is not a sexually transmitted disease, I think is really just being, in my view, dishonest because yep. we just don't know enough about the, you know, the, the permutations of this disease that, to know whether or not a particular tick with a particular um, combination of germs um, it being spit into a particular person with a particular strain, which is then going to then shape shift and shift my, uh, you know, um, shift the um, the um, uh, the proteins on on the body, which are then going to be uh, affected by by the immune system of the new host is is just impossible for anyone to say because we really are in the stone age as it relates to um as it relates to uh you know the research so really where where i would argue we should be is partners should be having these conversations partners should at least know that in vaginal secretions and in in sperm that these that these microbes are showing up and that yes. that it, it is also possible remember because we, we haven't talked about the partner right we could be infected and our partner may have a compromised immune system and that makes it more likely that, that person is now going to be affected right mm -hmm. so there are just so many different pieces of this that i think partners have to have this information and then have the conversation and make the decisions that make it most likely that they can have a healthy 
uh, sexual relationship rather than, you know, accepting anyone's hard no when we're at when we're in the Stone Age uh, at, at, at this uh, at this time with our research. Yeah, that's a, a nice way to sum it up, like to say kind of as a bit of, uh, you know, to be a little bit alert if someone is saying 100 percent no, 100 percent yes. That's kind of your your cue to be like, hmm, you know, I'm I, that's interesting. You're hundred percent. No. And then I find actually the more I probe practitioners, any ones I've had like, Hey, what research are you referencing when you say that? Cause I've got the hundred percent. Yes. And then I've also got the hundred percent. No. Um, so I actually have been having those conversations and saying, um, you know, well, are you referencing this? And they're like, I'm not, I'm not the one I'm referencing this, this practitioner told me this one, this one, this one. So I'm saying what well, that doctor said from what that person referenced. I'm like, okay, okay. Thank you for telling me. So let's look at, you know, that. So definitely what you said in sexual health, it's a very individual choice. You know, it is, it is your choice, um, you and your partner's choice. Uh, so what you're saying to sit down and have that chat together. Um, yeah, it, there, you know, it definitely potentially can be, um, not sure. I don't know. I don't have the answer because the research isn't there yet for me to be convinced. Um, but, but definitely it is your choice. So if you're, you know, if you're feeling a lot of pressure, ultimately in sexual health world, if two, two partners come in or however many partners come in, um, it's, it's their choice. Um, sexual health is their choice. So it comes and down to that. But one of the things I keep developing here, Lacey, is respond with ability, right? We have to respond with ability when we're interacting with, with our doctors. <laughs> we have to respond with ability uh, when we're when we're looking at the research and making making um, healthcare decisions and 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 and, and sexual um, uh, decisions, it's really all about responding with ability. And 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 give me your thoughts on once we once we gather all this information and once we have that, how much are we now going to rely on our gut and allow our allow our body and our gut and our emotions to give us give us um, insight into what decisions we should be making with our partners. Oh, you might hate me for what I have to say about this. No, you won't. Okay, so with me, my my body and my gut and my ability to feel my emotions were completely numb from the, like all the chronic illnesses and the PTSD. So unfortunately, there was a period of time where I literally couldn't feel any of that. So it was difficult for me to tap into that. Now that I'm healing, I can tap into that. And it's very strong and it's guided, like it's, it's so helpful. I'd be like, oh, it's my nervous system. I need to sit down and do this. Like, uh oh, something's not right with that person. Like, mm -mm, I don't know why. I don't want to be around them. Nervous system yeah. is not feeling good. Um, so absolutely that intuition is so, so important. And even as you're going around and if you don't, you're like, hey, I don't think that medical professional gave me the, the proper diagnosis. Like you're probably bang on in our illnesses. We're a little bit, unfortunately, uh, impaired and numb at certain points. Um, so for me to tap into my gut when I was really sick, my gut's like, um, I'm not working. Or you were disassociated at that point and because disassociated, you, yeah. you, were, you were spiritually and, and physically separated, um, yeah. you just, you just, and Had to be. that connection, you, you know, your, your body was not functioning. Yeah, but 100% that that intuition um, is now key for me and and guides me. And yeah, yeah, definitely now that I can feel it, it's amazing. So, so let's tie this all together, Lacey. We're, we're, we're coming now to the end of this podcast. Yeah. And, and as Matt said, we could spend many, many more hours with you. And we probably have to do a follow-up so we can maybe do a deep dive on some of these topics that we, oh. we haven't been able to go in as deep as we'd like to. Okay. Um, let's talk about how now, how this, this young woman who was training in both 
both um, you know, the, the, the physical healing arts and the emotional healing arts has now gone on this journey herself. She is, she has gotten to a point where she is, she is well on her way to, uh, to remission and, and tell us how this experience has been beautiful for you, how, how it has taught you about the gifts and talents that you have and how you're going to be serving the Lyme disease community, not just now, and you are in many different ways, such as participating in this podcast and, and, and building a really powerful Instagram, but talk about what the future is for you in, uh, in serving this community and in serving the world. Yeah, yeah. So now that I'm about 65% healed, um, it really, it feels so much more possible. I just, even the little bits there. Um, so I would say that um, it's kind of helped, to be honest, connect me with different people that I might not have connected with otherwise. Um, so for example, is is my, I, I won't, maybe this will be a follow-up, but as I'm able to shift this into parts of career and also how I want to give back to the Lyme community. So part of this bringing the STI information together eventually on, on my social media, I'm going to, I'm going to share that, you know, so people can have that accessible. Um, but that'll be, it'll be slow over time because now, now I'm way more aware of overdoing it. I have to be, or I get, get sicker. So I cannot overdo it. So slow and steady. Um, so I, I very passionate about um, serving the Lyme community and my, when I'm back to work, it'll actually be independent and it will be, without giving too much hints, it will be mental health primarily related um, therapy. And and um, I look very forward to, yeah, some sort of follow-up where I can fill you in a bit more on that. But in terms of, I want to say one thing, um, I actually found my current partner and boyfriend um, in the sickest, you know, some of the sickest years here that I've been in. And um to find someone that is so open to your health stuff and just, you know, loves you for you during this has been really, really key. Um, really, really having that support for me. So, um, yeah, I don't know when, when we just reconnected. And so, uh, yeah, he knows about all my illnesses, all this stuff. Um, and in a world where you feel invalidated so often, um, that's been key. So connecting with that, connecting with all these different practitioners that are just doing such amazing work. Um, and also I'm tr learning to treat myself way better. Like, it, I, because I flare up if I don't, I have no choice now. So I have to go slow. I can't be rushed. I, I can't do too much with my spine. And so I now have to kind of do that fighting and care for myself that I've done for other people for so long. So I'll stay connected with that. And to be honest, I, I may not have got that because I was operating in high stress for so long that that's that kind of the biggest gift. Um, and it's, it's really nice to know that my talents can, not my talents and background can help people going forward. So I love that because that's, you know, nursing for me, I get to help people and work with them. So. But Lacey, we can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us. This was really an awesome interview and it was a long time coming. Matt and I certainly had been anxious to, uh, to do this with you since we met you through the, uh, through the support group and, and finally, it's, it, it, it has arrived. So uh, we, we really appreciate everything you're currently doing for the community, really appreciate everything you shared with us. And we look forward to a follow-up where you can give us uh, some more specific details on uh, on the work that you're going to be doing on mindset and mental health. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I get just as excited about that. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate it. It's been awesome. And I've been counting down the days to this, too. Um, my boyfriend and dog will be happy because they're hanging out in the room for waiting for when I'm done here. So we're going to we're going to order some takeout food and just kind of celebrate. So. 
Well, congratulations. They'll be excited to come out of the room too. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you very much. I thank them. Thank them for their patience as well. I will. I will. Yeah. And thank you guys so much because it is so awesome to hear more about, you know, what brought you guys into this world and the help that you're doing. So I knew that you guys would debate with me on an, so I'd be like, yeah, this is exciting. So that's awesome. I appreciate what you guys do too.